I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. I wish I had a time machine. Kittens, and welcome to episode, what, 87 of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and I appreciate your patience tonight, because I know I initially scheduled this for 7.30 p.m. Eastern, and I pushed it to 8.15 p.m. Eastern so that I could grab some tacos and margaritas for dinner. (laughs) And guess who I saw while I was sitting kind of street side having my dinner this evening? Morgan Harper, the progressive uh, Senate candidate from Ohio who lost to Tim Ryan, uh, Tim Ryan because nothing is just and fair in the world, happened to cruise by on the street. So shout out to Morgan Harper, who I hope will um, give me some notice next time she's in D.C. so we can have a real tete-a-tete. Look, I know you guys are buzzing about today's episode. I saw you in the comments on Patreon having all of the opinions. And some of you tuned in to my uh, appearance on RBN, the Revolutionary Blackout Network, tonight with CJ and Nick. I hope if you didn't catch that this afternoon, rather around 4 p.m. Eastern, you should definitely go back and listen. You know that I have sung the praises of RBN many times, both here on On Bad Faith Podcast. Please give them a like and a subscribe. Always, always, you've got to help support independent media, especially when they are truth tellers, the likes of which all of the people over at RBN are. You know, we've had um, uh, JB on the show on our famous dating episodes that everybody loves so much. Uh, maybe the most reasonable man on the men's version of the dating show. No shade to the to the others. Um, and we will be having we, CJ has been we had a really great long episode of the debrief talking about similar subjects that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, Loved that episode. And I hope to have both Nick and hopefully Savvy, Savvy Sabs on Bad Faith Podcast proper soon. But let me not draw this out and linger and malinger, as um, some of my Cleveland relatives like to say. And let's get straight to the queue. Samuel, what's on your mind this evening? Samuel, can you unmute yourself, Samuel? You got to press the little like corn cob button in the bottom right hand side of the screen. It's a it's a microphone, but given the um, popularity of the there corn okay. guy, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hi, sorry. The, yeah, again, no worries. For some reason, just closed. Well, I just had a couple quick things to say. Firstly. In reference to the last episode where you discussed the student debt situation with Sparky, 
Mm-hmm. I just wanted to say I agree with you. The whole situation is fakakata. The president is a schmuck. <laughs> the White House is full of schmuels. The Supreme Court is absolutely Michigana. Alito is Fugitana. And the lenders and servicers are all Ghana. Enough with this Michigan. <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, I need a sound effect for this. Oh, my God. <laughs> Samuel, you are a king. You are a Yiddish king. Can I tell you? First of all, I feel I feel a little ambivalent about my predilection for Yiddish. But, oh, is there anything more expressive and on point <laughs> Thank you. It really is. It really is. It gives you, and I, I love it. I love it. And I was just like racking it up as you were going. I was like, oh, now we're for cocktail. It's beautiful. But <laughs> I was, I wanted to hear more from Sparky. I feel like he should have some up his sleeve, but. Um, uh, Spar- look, Sparky, he, he claims, you heard him on the call in probably last week saying, oh no, have somebody else on to talk about the pushback to Jed's point. Maybe I'll have someone else. Maybe it'll be Sparky, but we all know, like, I don't, you know, everybody over at um, the Debt Collective knows how much I love them, but I have a special place in my heart for Sparky because I do really think he marries, like, the, um, like, uh, legal framework specific side of the argument with the moral, like, really, like, in a not preachy, very empathic, very relatable way part of the argument. And he's just my favorite, my favorite student debt advocate. Yeah, yeah. And and as for the, the moral argument, something that comes to my mind sometimes, you know, you hear one thing you hear from some people is, oh, well, you shouldn't have gone to college and taken those loans. You should have done this or that, which I always think it's like, OK, you can easily say that retroactively. Right. right. And right. it makes me think there's this there's this little, little short story by Kafka about a mouse. I think it's called a little fable where it's like, there's a mouse running away from a cat and the mouse goes down this hallway. And then at the end, there's a trap and it sees, Oh no, there's a trap. And then it tries to turn around and the cat says, Oh, just run away from the trap. And then the cat just picks the mouse up and eats it. Right. So Mm -hmm. the idea Mm -hmm. is like, there's no right way to turn, right. Mm -hmm. It's one trap or another. If you, if you don't go to college, your wages are going to be really low. If you do go to college, your wages are going to be a little higher, but you're going to have too much debt to pay back. So mm-hmm. it's like there was no right move here, you know. So I love that's, that. that's how I always think of it. And I'm just I just count myself so lucky every day. You know, I have low income. It sucks out here, but I am so glad I don't have debt. Like that was that's the one thing just make it so awful and i'm just lucky that my family could pay for me to to go to college so i don't think anyone should have that burden yeah it's so funny because i know that folks get frustrated by the back and forth i have with robbie on rising in the mornings but i actually am appreciative of the extent to which like sometimes he raises good questions that force me to really fortify my own arguments and One of the things that has become increasingly clear as we've talked about student debt is that, you know, he's right. Like he's really right about the extent to which, you know, this is a systemic issue. And, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it feels like a deflection when he says things like, oh, but like the real issue is the cost of colleges and administrative bloat and all these other things. But like there is there is some truth to all of those critiques as well. And I think it is a good thing to to reckon with that stuff. It helps you gain yeah. credibility as an advocate for the things that we can do, like right now today by executive order. And also it, it's a, it's a sincere, like part of the problem. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm just 
I think you're you're right that part of you know, it's a catch twenty two and it's a catch twenty two that isn't going to be resolved right unless we get to the meat and potatoes of the problem. Yeah, and and it's it is valid to say well the real problem is this systemic problem that it's exploitative it's a scam that's all true but that's not a reason why the people who got scammed mm-hmm. shouldn't get relief right that that that's about what we need to do in the future that doesn't mean oh then let's keep people with these debts like right. that doesn't follow right um but just a couple things i would note you said that i should wait for the the cornell west episode which was great i i loved to, i think he went uh he talked with you and then sabby sabs like mm-hmm. right after mm-hmm. and they were both great and he's very interesting it was i hadn't seen him in a while his comments in a while and he says a lot of things that resonate with me. He talks about the professional managerial class. He talks about character and moral decline and decadence and the fact that we're in like the decadent declining imperial core. And mm. to me, it's like, I often, you know, I've read some articles, commentary articles, and I say similar things. And those, those ideas like seem to land more with conservatives and like, mm. Lefty, I've sent stuff to every lefty outlet. Um, well, maybe not every, but a bunch of different lefty outlets. And generally they won't touch it, but conservative outlets have taken several of my articles. And mm. and they people, some people seem to perceive me. I guess I'm, you know, you could say I'm sort of in the Christopher Lash sort of vein. Um, but I love Catherine Liu. I mm. love mm-hmm. uh I love ContraPoints. I know that she's mm. controversial, but personally, I love ContraPoints. No, I think she's and great. I lo- absolutely love Natalie Wynn. These are like my heroes. And, you know, I always see myself as a leftist, but it's like the left is so, it's so narrow at the moment, what people are like ready to hear. And it may... You know, well, the yeah, thing is, is, is it narrow or are there a handful of gatekeepers who right. are legitimately large on the left who mm-hmm. keep trying to narrow it? Because it seems to me yeah. when I have this conversation with RBN like I did today and when I see them doing things like having debates with people like Jackson Hingle, who, look, I have plenty of <laughs> disagreements and critiques about his approach. But when I see the ways that they're able to, like, talk about it and work it through – in a way that seems expansive rather than restrictive. And, you know, like when, yeah. when I see people have an appetite for someone like, and I know, again, this is something I was accused of being a fascist for saying, uh, for complimenting his videos about the queen, but Russell Brand, who I've loved for years as a comedian and as a public figure who has always championed socialism and been very critical of the courtocracy. Like he, he is, like, it's very confusing mm-hmm. to me to see that there's obviously an appetite for that kind of, um, you know, uh, like kind of like political discussion, that mm-hmm. kind of discourse. And to see that as losing ground to the right, as opposed to an opportunity to have some consolidation around these left issues. And I do think it's very dangerous mm-hmm. for us to abandon some of these things that should be core left issues, like speech issues, like um, – criticism of the pharmaceutical industry, like a lot of stuff that has been like appropriated, I think very smartly by the right and pushed in directions that I don't necessarily agree with. Like the, the opportunities are right there. And I think that, you know, some of the caution I think is legitimate. We should be, you know, very clear eyed about, 
what exactly is happening and who's using who and who's pushing who in what direction. But to not see that as an amazing opportunity to, to grow the movement, I think is, is so short-sighted. Yeah. And it's, and I think that the crucial thing I was going to say that, that you and Cornell West got to was that it's okay to work with certain people and see what you have in common with them while also disagreeing with them on very important things. Like there it's, I, I still, I, I can never accept this sort of attitude that you see around sometimes that like, well, if I agree on with people on some things, but then disagree on others, that means that they're like secretly trying to trick me. You know, mm. it's like everyone has to be either they 100% agree with me about everything and then they're good. They 100% disagree with me and then they're evil mm -hmm. or they're like in between and we have some points of disagreement. In which case they're like even more evil because then they're like grifting or they're, mm -hmm. they're trying to deceive me. And it's like, you know, if, if you believe your beliefs are, are sound and you stand by them, then what are you afraid of? Like, why not, why not try to, to get along with people and accomplish something together? And then maybe you'll change their thinking rather right. than they'll change you. Right. It's this right. insecurity. It's an insecurity. It's exactly what I was going to say. It's this weird insecurity, which is such an odd, an odd tell. And when I talk to folks like Glenn, who, you know, is obviously very smart, whatever else you think about him, I do sometimes think of, and I think the same thing about Russell, by the way, um, that he, he, even when I was watching him and like forgetting Sarah Marshall or whatever, he always struck me as like extremely brilliant. And that was kind of the root of his comedy. I, I think to myself, mm -hmm. part of why these these people are willing to be so iconoclastic is because they have so much confidence in their own worldview and in their own intelligence. And as we've mm -hmm. discussed on the podcast, sometimes I can lead you into some like crazy directions that I don't necessarily agree with. And again, I like I really loved the episode with Glenn and Nathan Robinson where there was some, I think, really productive push and pull on, you know, whether mm -hmm. or not we should you know, be more skeptical or more outspoken of some of the people that we engage with in the public sphere, like the Tucker Carlson's, et cetera. But I, I do think that there is a, that, that part of why certain figures have managed to be so trailblazing and stick to their guns against the onslaught of overwhelming public opinion is because they are just sincerely confident in their worldview in a way that I wish were frankly more common. Like confident yeah. that like someone just saying the alternative point of view in your presence wasn't going to make everybody suddenly convinced to go in the wrong direction. Yeah. And this is a common error all kinds of people make, I think, is they think that everyone else is just like a passive receiver of whatever they hear and that people aren't using their critical faculties when they hear different ideas and opinions and facts. And that like you can trust people a little bit to hear different things and not like immediately become fascists, I guess, seems to be the fear. Um, yeah. I mean, so. it's scary. Look, like it's scary and people are like persuadable and stuff, but I don't know. I, I know, I just think of myself, I, I listen to all kinds of stuff. I, you know, I listen to Ben Shapiro. I listen to Pod Save America. I listen to all kinds of things because I want to know what the other side is thinking. And if I thought folks were that vulnerable and that impressionable, that even just putting your ear on something would turn you into the person that's talking you know, mm -hmm. oof, I wouldn't be able to function. So 
Yeah. Now, anyway, I, I really appreciate you calling in today. Was there anything else or should I get on to these, this 28 person queue that I'm looking at right now? Right, right. Yeah, I guess I would just, I would just briefly say, I know people want to talk about the Zogby interview and I think mm-hmm. you were very firm, uh, very firm with him and represented your audience's views, which was great. And, you know, I, I respect and appreciate what he's done, but um, it did, it did start to sound a little bit like me, like, maybe you need to get out of this abusive relationship. <laughs> like um, it's a, uh, you know, don't, doesn't he, isn't he concerned for like his personal dignity? And isn't there some line where he's like, I'm just not being respected in this organization. Uh, I don't know, but I'm sure lots of people have lots of feelings about it. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll just uh, listen to what other people have to say. Well, look, I really appreciate you calling in, Samuel, and your your intro <laughs> was perfect. Thank you so much I'm for that. Put a real smile on my face. All right, I'm keep thank the faith. You. Keep the faith. Pierre, Pierre, you're you've been doing a really good job of getting like in line very quickly, and I laud you for that. But also, I might have to start skipping around a little bit if you keep being this good at it. How are you doing today? Oh. Good. How are you? Can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear. What's on your mind this evening? Um, yeah, I know. I, I got the fast finger. But um, <laughs> I, I I did talk. I brought up third parties last time. I know it was off topic. So mm-hmm. Well, you're on topic and, tonight. Okay. I didn't hear the, the interview or the dialogue with you and Zogby. I don't know if that's okay. But um, I, I guess, you know, I can be kind of inarticulate and nervous and take a, a few seconds to get my thoughts out. So um, that might've been one reason that it didn't go well last time. Um, But I think that like, the thing I think about with um, third parties is I think that like, they just like any major party candidate needs to like be persuasive to get your vote and they shouldn't take for granted anyone's vote. I think a third party candidate also needs to be persuasive that they can overcome the hurdles of the political electoral system mm-hmm. and uh, be persuasive that they can not just be a candidate that siphons off votes from one of the major parties and then put in a party that doesn't give you 20, 10% of what you want, but gets you a negative 20% of what you want. Um, so I think that that's just something that like needs to be considered. I also, one other point I'd like to make is that like, I think that, I agree that like, like I said, no party, you don't, no one is owed um, a vote or no party is, or you're not obligated to vote for any candidate or any party every time around. I totally agree with that. I think that like, for me, strategic voting is about like doing lobbying and mobilizing as much as I can every, every year, every month. And then the one time you do have to make a cost benefit choice. Um, strategic voting or strategic choice in the political environment is when you're making that five, filling out your ballot for 10 minutes. That's the only time you're really, you really, in my opinion, need to make that kind of cost benefit analysis for like, do I want something that's going to give me, that's going to spoil it and give me 10% of, like I said, 10% of what I want or negative 10% of what I want. And I think that that's, something that people don't consider is that like there's plenty of other opportunities to not compromise. But I think 
when you try to choose a candidate, you're not going to get everything you want. I know you've heard all these arguments before, but I just, I guess I feel like kind of frustrated that that doesn't really get articulated in a way that's empathetic to the um, needs of voters as well. I would highly recommend, as I said before, going to listen to the conversation I had with CJ and Nick over at RBN tonight, because I think this, this is the key point. I promise you, Pierre, that no one needs to explain to them how difficult a third party party challenge is and how unlikely it is, at least in the short term, to yield an actual candidate in the Oval, Oval Office. But given that there is also little to no opportunities for people to get into the Oval Office as progressives running on the Democratic Party ticket, the burden is not on me to prove that third parties can win. The burden is on you to prove that a progressive running on the Democratic Party isn't going to have 15 red targeting dots on their head the second they hop into the race that guarantee their failure. And the question is, if basically the Oval Office is off the table for either approach, what is more, what presents more opportunity for gain? The third party candidate who starts to build an alternative to the two party system that breaks the plutocracy or someone who unintentionally, tacitly, you know, against their will endorses the legitimacy of the system that we live in and intentionally or not, she herds people back into a party, which devotes more resources per today's episode to knifing progressives in the back than it does to actually defeating conservatives. In fact, it has devoted millions of dollars to ads to support MAGA conservatives because of their belief that pipering them into a general election will help the Democratic Party win than it does to actually support people like Morgan Harper, who I would much prefer to be rooting for against J.D. Vance, people like Summer Lee, who managed to win despite all of those, all of that dark money being allied against her forces against people like India Walton and Buffalo and Nina Turner and um, old girl in Texas, uh, Jessica Cisneros. That is the democratic party. So the case that has to be made, I don't have to prove my case at this point. I'm just trying things and throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's, the, it's people who are advocating the inside strategy who have to make the case for why they think that it's as that, is that at all plausible when per today's episode and Jim, uh, Jim Zogby talking about how well they have managed to calibrate the system to derail progressives without having to lift a finger, using independent expenditures and dark money to do it, how effective they are at preventing any more progressives getting into Congress. Yeah, Why I should mean, we devote our time and energy to that as opposed to the alternative? Well, major parties, of course, they're going to try to consolidate. And that's true for any major party. That's just a natural inclination. Um, I don't think that's unique to the Democratic Party. Um, I think that, like, yeah, I totally agree with you that in all in, in the respect of, like, they need to make the case. And if they don't make the case, then that's totally true. Um but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I didn't watch the Zogby thing, so maybe I should defer to other people who have, but I don't know. I just think that, like, um, there's real obstacles, and it's not just corporate. It's not just dark money. It's not just those things. It's the constitutional system that we have. 
It's the lack of proportional representation. It's first past the post. It's gerrymandering. It's the structure of the Senate. All of these things and the primary system. And I think all of these things that are not necessarily unique to the Democratic Party. And I think, yeah, totally. I would love a proportional system. Maybe there's a way to like build support for bigger reforms like that that can allow a third party to legitimately compete. I think a third party, they need to persuade even more so because they have more obstacles and it's not fair, but I think it's just the reality. And I think it, that's, you need to, they need to persuade that they can not only. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, look, Pierre, I don't agree that there's more obstacles. I think there's different obstacles. And I think, again, I think you're, you're framing the obstacle as obstacle to the white house when there's so many other residual benefits oh, yeah, yeah. of running for office. Totally and if agree. Bernie, like, here's what I wanted to work through with, Zogby, in which he wasn't really open to working through, like all due respect. But what I wanted to work through was, okay, Trump won in 2016. He won. So all the fear mongering about what if Trump won, okay, like with the benefit of retrospect, we know that he won. So if we knew that at the time, walk us through what would have happened if Bernie said, screw it. I'm going third party in 2016. What would that have happened? If we had the foresight to know that Bernie was going to lose in 2020 anyway, he didn't have to reserve political capital, and that Trump was going to win anyway in 2020 in 2016, what would it have looked like? Would we be in a better place today if Bernie Sanders had started us on the path five years ago, six years ago, toward a legitimate third party with Bernie Sanders imprimatur on it? And all of the people who are tired of Trump and Trumpism and MAGAism, and who are tired of the corporate Republican Party, and who are tired of the corporate Democratic Party, if they had a place to land with someone who was a genuine leader and who had behaved with integrity over the course of a 40-year career, not necessarily Andrew Yang, who's a newer comer to this, who won't commit to getting corporate money out of his party, who won't commit to some of the things that made Bernie and, frankly, Trump so popular, but someone like Bernie Sanders – where would we be today? That's the thought experiment I want to engage with. But look, Pierre, thank you well, for calling in. I'm going to go ahead and skip to someone. Um, well, can I just make one last point? Sure. Just based on that. Well, the fact is that the reality was that we didn't have that foresight. And so what could have happened is Bernie could have siphoned off votes. Maybe not, but maybe. And we wouldn't have known that the alternative, that if he wasn't running, he she still would have lost. And then in that situation, the left would have been completely ostracized more than they are now, and it would have been harder to gain legitimacy within the party. I think that they could have been ostracized even more. So I think that alternative scenario could have The left, out. just really think that through, Pierre, the left could be more ostracized than it is now, where no. the DNC will not even have a debate on the question of whether dark money, which is principally used to block progressives from ever getting into Congress— we would be more marginalized than we are in a position where we literally couldn't even get an AOC probably today. Okay. Well, thanks for letting me talk. Like that, that's the question. That's the question. But look, yeah. I, I appreciate you for running through these things with me, Pierre. I'm going to yeah. go to Maggie back there at the back because I know that she – keep the faith, Pierre, because I know that she had a lot to say and she wasn't able to get up here last time even though she was in the front of the queue. So, Maggie, unmute yourself for us and tell us your truth. Okay. Did I do it this time? And you it didn't did it kick this me time. out. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear, Maggie. Oh my gosh, it sounds like you're underwater in slow motion. I can hear you, Maggie. Okay, I'm just gonna keep talking. And keep going, keep going, Maggie. It's just catching up. You're good. Okay, I'll keep. <laughs> okay, thank you. I will. I'll keep going. Um, first of all, something that struck me um, 
when Dr. Zogby was speaking as he was talking about, you know, he had to, we have to protect democracy, we have to preserve democracy, and that's why he's staying in there with the DNC and the Dem Party. And then he goes on to talk about how, well, there's supposed to be a voting membership, but there's not. So it doesn't strike him at all that he's mm-hmm. trying to preserve democracy through something that its organizational structure precludes democracy. It doesn't mm-hmm. even respect it within itself. Mm-hmm. And it uses it against democracy. And then, and if you're speaking honestly, I cannot hear you. So please know that I'm not trying to talk over you or being rude. I'm just- No, you're good. Going. Keep going. <laughs> okay. And the other thing is he talks- Okay, I'll keep going. He talks, thank you. He talks about dark money, right? This whole thing about dark money. And then he goes on to say, in 30 years, I have never seen a budget or an accounting or an expense list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what is, then he defines dark money as that's money that isn't accounted. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there going, I, I can't help myself. Yep, you, you have to understand I've had a wardrobe of careers. And I couldn't help thinking of if you were working with this person as a, as a therapist, you would say, wow, I'm not making any diagnosis of, of Dr. Zogmi. I'm not, I'm using this metaphorically. Again, mm-hmm. I reinstate, I'm not diagnosing anything from afar. But what was interesting is he couldn't connect that the same thing he's fighting for he's perpetuating Mm -hmm. he's within a closed sort of toxic loop where there's no resolution and we would call that codependency because it's when you, you think of codependency as really many times it's a disorder of perspective most mental health things are you can't see them any other way than through a distorted, whatever brought you to the point of your perspective being distorted, but it's distorted like a funhouse mirror. And that is your, doesn't make you a bad person, anything like that. But you just stop seeing it as persons outside that, you know, dysfunctional, disordered system would see it. So um, a hallmark is you can't let what you're codependent on be suffer basically the consequences of their own decisions and mistakes. So it struck me again when he talks about when when you got him in your most lovely, it's either Socratic or therapeutic, I don't know what it is, but it is to be admired by every law prof, every therapist, everybody, the way you handled it is when you got close and he, and he got upset was when he says, well, the rock's at the bottom of the hill and I walk by it. Am I supposed to just walk away? Dude, yes, because they're mm-hmm. pushing it back down the hill. Mm-hmm. They are pushing it down the hill. Mm-hmm. You are in a closed loop. So yes, walk away from it. Walk away from it. And another thing that struck me sort of once that metaphor analog came into my head was when he was talking about, you know, I believe it was Rob Stein. Rob Stein that he had knew from 35 years ago or so, late 80s or 90s. To, and then he asked him when he got selected to be on one of the unity um, task forces or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says, what reforms would you like to see, you know, the party? And Rob Stein says to him, yeah, there's no party. Mm-hmm. Tear it down. Hello? 
Mm-hmm. What have we been saying? So what does he do? He wants to bring up an accountability division and it goes nowhere. And that was in 2020 told to him by somebody who had had three and a half decades of experience. So soon as I saw that, I thought, God love this guy. His entire identity is being the one that fights. It's like, again, I'm not making any kind of diagnosis. I'm using this as an analog metaphorically, but Mm -hmm. it's like somebody who cannot have the addict get clean, right? Because their whole identity is trying to get the addict clean. What happens when they are? It's like, wait, so the way, so basically it becomes a self-sabotaging. We've all known people, we've all done it to ourselves. Yeah, it's very relatable. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, you're trying just like this. It's really weird. So again, if I'm being completely rude. No, you're great. Keep going. You're on a roll. Keep going. But it's the most bizarre. I have no idea what's wrong with my thought. Anyway, so the uh, um that struck me and then another thing um you know he 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 when he when he let me look at i made i made a note forgive me forgive me just checking in maggie just making sure you're still with us Maggie, did we lose you? No, Maggie. Maggie. The the internet's been a little bit weird. Maggie, we've all been waiting for this so long. I had the song queued up last time and I couldn't play it. This one, this Rod Stewart jam. Wait a minute, where is it? Why is this not playing? Why is this not playing? So weird. Why is this not playing? Regardless, that is so that is so weird. Why is this not? Maggie, are you with us while I'm fooling with this random song? I want this played through my device. Anyway, okay, Maggie, I might have to move on. Um I might have to move on, Maggie May. I'm going to give you just a couple more seconds because we were really on a roll. And I know that people were really, um, were really invested in what you were saying, but like, I just want, want to, oops, sorry. I just want to co-sign everything that you said so far. Look, get back in line and I will call on you at a later date if you get back in. Okay. Um, but you were great. And we all, everyone was really feeling it. Chris Brown, I'm going to pull you up while Maggie's figuring, figuring herself out. Can you hear me? I can hear you. What's on your mind? Um, I wanted to talk about the uh, the railroad strike. Okay, I, let's do it. Yeah, and I wanted to, your opinion. So a part of me, like I woke up this morning and I was kind of like excited when I read the news that they reached a deal and everything. But as the day went on, it kind of was like, well, it doesn't seem like the actual railroad workers are really keen on the deal. But mm-hmm. I feel like there's like an energy that's really going on as far as like the working class. So do you think this momentum that they have, is that going to translate to uh, possibly more strikes, more opportunity, well, more, more deals to go to like unions and things like that, and just more 
just a demand of respect from the employer class? Whew, this is difficult. Um, we talked about this a little bit on the RBN this afternoon. There is a world of possibilities of where it's something, a moment like this can go. And the possibilities broaden depending on what we did in the past. And I think this is why some of us thought it was actually a good idea to talk about things like general strikes. Mm-hmm. Because you never know when the moment's going to occur and people need to be primed for what opportunities could be gained by having multi-sector strikes and other people capitalizing on this moment because not not every strike by every industry could have the same level of effect and therefore the same level of leverage as mm-hmm. this railway strike. Yeah. And so, you know, a part of me is really mourning the idea that the left could have been really united around the possibility of what a moment like this could entail. Yeah. It'd be really primed for, you know, taking advantage of this moment. Even so, you know, we still don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something very powerful about how much attention and sympathy um, these railway workers have been able to garner despite the corporate media and <laughs> these politicians framing what's been going on in the absolute least sympathetic way possible. Yeah. I was, I was very pleased to see the, the tenor of the comments to my radar this morning, for instance. Where despite it being more conservative audience, all the all the rising people are like, hell yeah, we're with the workers. Like this is ridiculous. They're mm-hmm. asking for so little, and they do so much. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a perfect situation in terms of appealing to what exists in America's brain as like quote unquote real workers and like valuable workers and like authentic blue collar people. Like all of those stereotypes that are frustrating sometimes when we're trying to get sympathy for other groups. Everything, all the stars are aligned. Like this is the perfect kind of labor moment in the American imagination. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I hope we can like capitalize off of this because I think it is this weird thing that I think, especially more so that's getting pushed on like the Republican side of somehow if you if you don't wear a hard hat or if you don't have if you're not in a grueling job where your body is sore and everything like that, for somehow you're not a real worker. And I've been noticing a lot of um, a lot of like talking. I call them talking heads. Just like try to like co-op that movement and like honestly kiss their ass and suck their dick. Like to do like stuff. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, you're good. We're all adults. Right. Here. But but then they shit on something like a barista, and then mm-hmm. they shit on like or what they don't deem as like valuable work. And it's mm-hmm. like work is work at the end of the day. Like I even saw it, like, like I, I saw um, you and Robbie were discussing it and it was the idea of like somehow teachers have been maligned into these evil people when it's like, no teachers work just as hard too. And the idea that a teacher has a union and that's just bad. And it's like, but what, like, what are we talking about? And why are we discriminating necessarily against work? Why is physical labor, I guess, in this idea was more appealing than, Retail or teaching or anything. Like I hundred percent. Yeah. I just, I personally, I personally just don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And look, I, what was, I think the, the best part for me today about the comments was, you know, so I've, you heard Robbie and I get into it about yeah. teachers a little bit. And mm. so many of the comments were actually about teachers and, you know, it, it's funny because in the past, if someone had said something like what Robbie said about 
you know, teachers unions being a problem and that they're mm-hmm. actually very well compensated. I might have tried to have a more technocratic argument, but I guess what I'm realizing over time is that the moral argument, the humane argument, appealing to what people know, like teachers work hard. I loved mm-hmm. my teachers. I'm grateful mm-hmm. for my teachers. People have children who are taught by teachers who they interact with and they know that they spend the teachers spend more time with their kids every day than they do. And they, they love their kids' teachers. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that teachers work hard. I mean, no one's personal experience of teachers is that they're like some class of greedy gusses. Like no like I had teachers that I hated, sure, whatever. But like mm-hmm. no no one's like overall impression of teachers. This isn't some abstract category. Like maybe I don't personally have a friend who's a barista. Maybe I don't personally <laughs> have a friend who's a railway worker. But everyone has had a teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And everyone remembers their favorite teachers too. Yes. Yes. And so what I discovered is in the comments, like I think that sometimes the most effective thing is just saying well, you know, you can feel how you feel, but I love teachers. I value mm-hmm. teachers and I want teachers to be well compensated for what they do. I think teachers are very important. I, you know, I think teachers are heroes. <laughs> you know, like, and that yeah. just saying things Watch like that. Watch your like, badass kids. Yeah, I mean, yes. And those, those kind of statements <laughs> just remind people of their values as opposed to their like politics. If you get yeah. the difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely do get the difference. And I think just like, it sounds like, like for me, because there's a lot of like co-opting of like this movement and everything. And it's like, everyone wants to say they're behind workers until, oh, well, this worker, maybe they have a different political ideology. So I think with people, when it comes to like the people who work at baristas and make coffee, it's just like, oh, it's the pink hair. It's the blue, yeah, you know, the, the, the crazy colors and everything like that, or the, the rainbow mm-hmm wristbands and everything like that so somehow it's a little bit different but it's like no like at the end of the day and then it's also always to me sometimes a little bit more crazy because it's like the same people who argue against that it's like you do realize we're all in the same bunch right like you have more in common with that barista than you do Ted Cruz yes and it it just just don't and, and the fact that they're able to disassociate themselves and not recognize that a win, like maybe because the rail, like I said, the, with, like what you said was the railroad workers were like the kind of like the perfect storm to where even people on the right are like, no, this is ridiculous and everything. And there was like some unanimity in that, though. Mm-hmm. But like, we're all the same people. It's like, that's why I root for the uh, the railroad workers, because they can actually like they have a union and everything like that. But if they can actually demand and literally shut the country down, which was the threat and everything like that, just to get days off, it's like we all can do that. And we're all literally mm-hmm. on the same side. So, mm, no, that was just like my, my opinion and my two cents on it. No, well, I appreciate that. And I think you're right. I think in some ways you can read into the insistence on the mainstream media not to name the demands mm-hmm. as an almost a tacit, a tacit acknowledgement of how vulnerable they are to, mm-hmm. you know, being on the, the bad side of public sympathy. Like, if they yeah. even hint at what's really going on here, they know that the public is going to side with the rail- railway workers. And you know what's crazy? Like, I was, like, li- like when when at first, like, I think it was, it was actually, uh, I was listening to Breaking Points, and they was talking, and Crystal did, like, a, um, she did her uh, little segment on the, um, the railway workers. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I didn't even know nothing about this. But mm-hmm. when I tried to look for information, when I was literally, I was like, oh, what's going on? I looked up, I just put railroad workers, mm-hmm. and everything. 
I only found two videos where they actually were talking to a person who was actually working on the railroad. And I'm mm-hmm. like, this is just so like, why? What? Like it was, and it was like kind of infuriating me because I'm going through videos. It's just a blank description of if they, if they strike, this could be bad for the economy. And it was mm-hmm. literally 10 videos. And then I found one video where they actually talked to, I think um he's been going to a couple of spots. He has like a red beard and everything like that. He's like a conductor and he was kind of talking and explaining. And I was like, I went in the comment section of that and I was talking and I ended up connecting on YouTube through a dude who actually is like uh, works on the railroads. And the guy was like, well, you don't understand. You know, they're saying that, but they get 15 days off. And then he was like, no, you don't understand. Cause I think how it was being presented was like, Oh, you know, after they work those two weeks, pretty much on call seven days a week, it's like, they get 15 days off. And it's like, no, that's not how that, that is not how it is for them. Like they don't mm-hmm. just, the 15 days off they have to schedule and do um as far as that and then like um like the idea of just like sick days like you can't just like i can go into my boss right now and like i'm not going to get killed or i'm not going to get penalized for the idea that i get sick that's crazy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and mm. also like to be clear like so so first of all i said this in my radar today because i had the same experience of just Mm. trying to find basic information about like the articles will allude to it being about time off policy, sick leave mm-hmm. policy, but they won't say specifically what the policy is they're working under. They say things like, well, there's a points-based system. Like, what the hell does that mean? Like, explain yeah, what, what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. And so then when you start to try to even drill down more on that, they'll say things like, well, they only have 15 days off. And the impression is also that it's like 15 days, like two weeks vacation on top of like weekends and normalness, right? Exactly. But no, 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 it's like 15 days out of 365 days total. Whereas right. the rest of us, I mean, anybody working like, you know, a normal, like 40 hour week with weekends. Okay. You right. get weekends. That ends up being like a hundred days a year that you're off. Exactly. Yeah. Like they don't, they don't get that. Like they don't get that. And that, that is something you can't find in an article. Even articles I will say that are written by good lefties that I know are at some of these institutions. Now you, mm-hmm. I was scrolling and scrolling. And I was like, Oh, well, Lauren Gurley will hit me to this. Like, she's great. <laughs> like she's going to, but even in the Washington post articles, you had to scroll down, down, down. And there wasn't as much as I wanted to see and i was like i was up late trying to finish my radar and i was like god do i have to really listen to an entire podcast by max alvarez at the real news <laughs> to find this basic information about what the freaking policy is because no uh, one else will write about it yeah he he had the the conversation that i really that i listened to where i got like more of an understanding of what like they ask what is like a daily week for a railroad work and i was just like this is just crazy and then i hope like i know they're saying that um they got um they came to some kind of agreement that's more of the top brass of the union i'm actually learning a lot more about this particular union and everything but it sounds mm-hmm. like people aren't hyped about it but i hope it's not that they just agreed to one sick day because i just feel like that would be a complete waste of everything like no fight for what you deserve dog like, i don't give a like me personally like i understand there's a demand for you so but you should have a life your your job you shouldn't be a slave to your job that's 100%. not 100% so, yeah, that's what I had to say. A hundred percent. Well, look, thank you so much for calling in. No problem. Oh, shout out to Red. I know he about to bring all the energy. <laughs> okay, so now you got me. I was going to hop around a little bit, but now <laughs> no, I have I got to go to Red, Red next. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Keep the faith. Mm. All right, Red. What have you got for us tonight? Pressure. Yo, what's the word? Thank <laughs> 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 you for bringing energy. All right, look. I'm gonna start talking to you. I'm gonna say something right now. Um, 
Bree, I feel like I'm one of your. I feel like I'm one of your regulars right now, and I know you want to jump around. You want to get like new people calling in. So I, I'm gonna make a promise right now. I'm only calling in once a week. I'll, I'll make you that promise. No, so that Brad, way. you can always call in. You should always call in. If I don't want, if I think that I should like spread the love, then I just simply won't call on you. Bree, like, you, sh- you should Bree, feel free to get in the queue. I I kind of like sitting back. I do really like sitting back listening to other people. But nah, I, I don't need to call in that day. This shit stresses me out sometimes, <laughs> so I do be needing a break. So I, well, I, I will call favorite. in only once a week since I kind of got the system down. Because anybody depending on these call in notifications to like help out, shit. <laughs> this app still got some ways to go. Are you not getting? Is it not like? Well, maybe it was my fault today because no, I, I did push the, it. I pushed I the time the notif- by forty five minutes. I don't get the notifications. I still got like. Messages and shit. I got replied back from people that like DM'd me, and I'm just like, when the hell did I get this? And they like from weeks, huh? Interesting. I just, I just look on your, I just look at when you be scheduling to post the show, and I just set an alarm for it. I got make my own like manufactured like mm. notification for it. So it be like, all right, she say seven fifteen. I set an alarm for seven fifteen, <laughs> and when it goes off, all right, I know she's probably going to go on. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking taking matters into your own hands. What's what's on <clears> your mind tonight? Okay, look, I got to ask you this again, because I know I asked you last time, and it really didn't really give some far, but I feel like now, after, like, shit, like, even with the whole thing with Jink, calling you a fake leftist, and that's like, oh, it's this, and it's just, like, all of these people that want to, like, take these grandstands and these moral, and these, like, moral concepts guys through their political, throughout whatever political voting, political activism, or whatever, I really just got to ask, like, seriously, mm-hmm. is it more? I know. And don't and don't take it like I'm saying, like, the right is offering anything. And I even think they're going that way. But what I'm asking, like, is it more dangerous for the left movement, for Democrats and everything, if people start shifting to the right? Because I kind of have some bad news. I got people that are just, like, completely giving up the whole front and the whole fight on my end. And everybody, and the reason why I'm asking is because everybody's going about it in different ways. I'm more lined up with you. I'm independent, but I am paying attention a little bit more to socialism. But I got cousins mm-hmm. and shit that are kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, Ron DeSantis got the right idea. And it's just like, no, that's not what we were supposed to go. So, yeah, look, I think that's that's real. We had a guy on today um, on Rising today, uh, I forget what organization he's affiliated with, but he was talking about polls about what's going on with Latino voters and increasingly voting Republican and why and on which axes and about what issues. And, you know, some of what I what he had to say was a little bit malarkey. Uh, you know, he's conservative and, you know, he says that it's about issues, but then doesn't say what issues it is that actually appeal to them about Republicans and you know, couldn't really answer my questions about, you know, what the plan was for healthcare, for instance, given that Latinos are the most underinsured group in the country and stuff like that. But generally speaking, I think his point about how Democrats are also not giving a good story about what they can offer from a policy perspective, at least what they can offer authentically and what people think they actually care about and what are actually going to sincerely follow through on from a policy perspective, they are similarly avoid. So even if their, their like technical story is better, the delivery is equally bad and the Republicans are better at some of the narrative stuff. 
and simply have more, I think, internal logical consistency with their worldview, even if I find that worldview to be unappealing personally. And so I think it's a real problem. It's a real problem. Right. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, like those of us who are trying to, you know, say comments and things and make, make similar criticisms that some people on the right are making of things that deserve to be criticized, but doing it from a left perspective and offering an alternative, we're doing our best. I mean, ContraPoints is an early person in this regard. She's been kind of flipping people from the right by offering like substantive analysis for a long time. People like Michael Brooks got into the space for that reason. And obviously many of us in this space are trying in different ways to help shepherd people in the right direction. What's ironic is I think some of us who are doing that are explicitly characterized by the rest of the left as like trying to shepherd people in the right direction, like in the conservative direction, which is very ironic because I think it's their smugness that's doing that. They're, they're smug insistence that they don't have to change anything about their pitch or be open to what it is that's motivating people right now. I mean, what right. do you think needs to be done about it? Like, what, what do you think is going on here? I mean, I still kind of don't know. I'm still just on an independent way. Like I said, I'm barely paying attention to socialists. But I got to agree with, like, what the first caller said. Ah, oh, shit, what was his name? What was his name? Shit. Uh, was it Pierre? My bad, bro. No, no, it was... um. It was Samuel, right? Was Samuel. Samuel, yeah, Samuel. All right, Sam, yeah, Sam, Sam, my bad, man, bro, I forgot the name, but nah, I'm kind of like agreeing with him, like with listening to this dude sounding like a battered spouse and just like begging and pleading, it's just like, dude, look, you say I got to give you a bunch of reasons as to why, um, like, oh, we can't go to this third party, right, we just got to stick with this shit, but I can give you a ton of reasons as to why I don't trust the Democratic establishment. I mean, if it's, it's one thing if, like, shit started with Hillary Clinton. Like, okay, they, they just became corrupt now for some reason after the black dude. Typical, but... <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay. There'd be one thing if they even said, well, the corruption didn't really start with the Democratic Party until the black dude got elected. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll even give you that. Then you can say, well, no, nah, it kind of started in the 90s with the Clintons and all that shit. Listen, if this corruption goes all the way back to where even my parents were babies, where we had X and King warning us, like, the only thing worse than white races is, like, these liberal whites that want to act like they want to help us, when deep down, really, they ain't, they really just out for self, and they're trying to have some little bragging rights, like, oh, I helped the poor and less than disinfect. It's all bullshit. I can't do that shit for these dems no more. And it's just like, it's gotten to a point now where they really have taken on like that Kennedy monarch of, oh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. But we've been kind of doing for the country for a long time. Country kind of ain't been doing shit for us. Country's been doing damn near everything else for everybody else but us. So now it's time for us to start asking, where's our cut? Because I was avoiding the whole student debt thing for like that main big reason of y'all just don't get like for the only people that like really gain a 100% win out of this is anybody who balance is gonna get like completely zeroed out or low enough to the point where they can pay it off on their own but everybody else that's just just gonna come back and it's like we on the left as a movement we told you motherfuckers what we want we told you what we ordered we asked for bread Y'all came back and gave us crumbs and scraps. 
what that fucking tells me is that y'all was back there eating the bread and just decided, all right, whatever's left over, give to them. So fuck these, so yeah. fuck these do nothing dems. <laughs> yeah. So fuck yeah. these do nothing dems on, on all fronts because I'm telling you right now, y'all can only fear monger motherfuckers into Trump for so damn long and democracy this, democracy that. How many damn elections y'all got to fix and rig against Bernie before we realize ain't no democracy on y'all land neither. And I'm and just I'm talking as a black man that ain't got nothing to lose. I'm not sorry to throw in the identity politics, but I'm no, saying because no, Red. I, I was literally thinking of you today when I was on on RBN, and I was making this point. It's like a delicate point to make out in the world. You know, I feel like on Colin, like no one's really listening to us, and I feel a certain degree of freedom to say what I want to say, even though that's like obviously not true, and it's going to get me in trouble one day. <laughs> I know ain't nobody like, taking me serious on here. <laughs> but I was I was literally thinking of you, Red, when I was I was telling them like that I'm so grateful for the people who come call into the call in show because I look, I'm not I'm not trying to speak for anybody, but I am cal- I'm like collecting the information that I hear from everybody else in the world and just trying to reflect and represent what I'm hearing. And what I'm hearing from people like you is like it's bad enough that you're willing to take the risk. You know, they told us that it was going to be terrible if Trump won and then Trump won and people survived it. It, it, I'm not saying it was great. And like, look, some people, there's an argument that they didn't survive it because they succumbed to COVID or something like that. But enough people are around. And not even give that dude a pass. We can't even blame that shit on. We can't blame that shit on Trump. And I can get all the other fronts on that end. But you kind of took the words right out of my mouth. Like with this fear mongering vote shit. I mean, look. Mm hmm. I survived four years of Trump. Mm-hmm. I can survive four more. And as a black man, that pretty much ain't got nothing to lose. If y'all want to, if I could, be, I could very well be jinxing myself right now because this dude still very well can get elected two years from now, and I'm gonna have to live, and I'm gonna have to live what I preach. And if I don't survive in the four years, then I kind of just feel like, well, I kind of really ain't got that much to lose anyway, according to y'all. So yeah. that's just kind of the fucked up end that it comes from for me because the one thing that the doctor said on the podcast that I didn't like was that there was some woman that it was some it was something about the bill he was like some woman was just like look I didn't get what I want but you know instead of three hundred thousand we got thirty thousand okay you know that, that's that's a win for us but that win don't reach everybody so mm-hmm. some people are out here playing this game and they're not winning at all we're not gonna mm-hmm. keep playing the same game with motherfuckers. Are just gonna change the rules on us and shit. It's time for a new fucking game, or I'm mm-hmm. going to fuck on. Fuck this shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that point about it's so funny because so often the argument is, well, if you would be willing to blow the election and let Trump win, you must be privileged. That's what we all heard in 2016, right? Like, oh, I ain't just saying. Oh, I just and man, please don't be the motherfuckers. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's the, the opposite. Don't be the motherfuckers. Yeah. Or or yeah. maybe yeah, I just don't got that much to damn lose. That yeah, I can't be bought, reasoned, or bullied into just being scared of some dude that don't that's not even thinking about me on his radar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, and, I, and I've heard enough of that. And this is like fundamentally the argument that I have with Chomsky. <laughs> this is like fundamentally the argument that I've been having with a lot of people because I do think there's this like psychological effect where. Folks that are already hurting just get grandfathered in every election cycle. It's like, oh, that's the way it is. But look at all these worst things that could happen if this person got elected. And it's like, well, eventually, if you just grandfather everybody in who's already hurting into this category of, well, you know, those harms already exist. We just have to prevent new harms from happening. They're going to lose 
your voting power. You're going to lose your ability to appeal to anybody because most people are the people who are already suffering, not the category of new sufferers. And that's not obviously to say that the new suffering doesn't matter, but it's to say there's always going to be a rightward shift and new people who are harmed and it's going to keep getting worse unless at some point, obviously it's like, it's like just logical. Like obviously at some point the stand is going to happen. And like on some level, look, I can understand that Trump felt different because he was, you know, more rude and more unhinged or something like he was like a weird dude. But in terms of like total harm that people actually cause the idea that I was supposed to feel worse about Trump and whatever he did, I don't know, opened up drilling in the Arctic and did a, did a tax cut for billionaires. Like I'm supposed to feel worse about that than Clinton and his welfare reform or Reagan and breaking the, the, um, uh, airport strike the, um, what do you call it? The, Jesus Christ, I, I maybe had. To I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're the 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 people who direct the airplanes. I don't know why I'm losing the word for it, but the air, air traffic controller strike, uh, breaking that, yeah. breaking that shit, like those kind of things that really had a long historical tales in them and had a dramatic effect on the social safety net or union um, power or things like that. It's like I'm, I'm not trying to minimize Trump, but like it feels like the other side is trying to minimize all that other stuff that we were just asked to swallow. Because we got to vote for the, the vote blue no matter who every year, every two yeah. to four years. Yeah, I mean, shit. So what? What's the offer? This is what I asked Chomsky. I said, Chomsky, look, I look, I can, I can, I'm open to your argument, but just explain to me at what point the vote blue no matter who is going to end. Give me the argument that okay, Trump, fine, unique harm, but give me the argument for what, which, which election cycle you're not going to say the same shit to me. Never because keeping this, I'm gonna just say three more points and get off because I really do want to like get a chance to everybody else. It's just like three quick points because it's just like it ain't gonna change because one, the whole thing that he was trying to fight for as far as like with dark money, that shit ain't never gonna happen because both Democrats and Republicans benefit from that shit. You're not gonna stop the damn cash cow from like corruption on from like any front. Like, look at what the fuck is going down in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's that. And I would talk shit about like why all of this shit is like blowing up and everything because of the midterms, but I'd rather save that for once everything goes down. All I'm gonna say is this anybody that's sitting around hoping and still got faith in this justice or this Democrat system is straight smoking crack. And I'm not underestimating for a sec. I wouldn't be surprised, and I also would not care if the Republicans take back the House and take back the Senate because clearly you motherfuckers ain't doing nothing with it no damn way. And call it, and just call it like, just man, one thing I can be jealous about with Republicans, no matter how crazy or cringe the candidate is, they'll stick, they got a better track record of loyalty of sticking with they guys than we do, than the libs do. And yeah, the, the crazy, the right-wing Republican gets the Republicans to um, consolidate around them in a way that the left-wing Bernie-type person instead has the Democratic Party la- launching Mayor Bloomberg to derail him at the last minute. <laughs> like, there's no consolidation. <laughs> Look at them right now. They're paying millions of dollars on right-wing ads to try to boost, like, Pied Piper, all of these um, MAGA, MAGA candidates. Like, 
that that's what the Democratic Party invests in. So and and only and I'm, I hope it I hope it blows up all in their fucking face. The last thing, because shit, I feel like I've been a little too serious on that. I don't know if anybody cares or not, but I'm still high as fuck. <laughs> we can. <laughs> A little too much, a little too many queen packs, but I, I've come down a little, I've come down What's a, a little queen bit. pack? Educate no. me, Red. What's a queen pack? You know I'm square as hell. Bree, you know, Bree, a queen pack. We smoking on the, we smoking on the queen because your ass, because they took her ass out. And she got oh. taken out in Virgo, and she got taken out in Virgo season. So we smoking her ass. <laughs> I told you it was disrespectful. <laughs> Disrespectful as hell. See, Red, this is why you're a fan favorite. So don't you da- don't you dare self censor. You better get you better get in. This I'm not self censoring. I'm not self censoring. It's once a week. <laughs> Come on, y'all. Y'all can go out with it. But all right. Well, I look forward Bri, to hearing from you at least you next do. Thursday. Mm-hmm. Totally love everything you do. Needless to say, love the show today. Fantastic. You're the goat. I'm still still gotta give you your flowers, even though. It's just it's be like, well, yeah, obvious. <laughs> but uh But alright. To all my bad faithers out there, keep the faith. Once keep a week, faith, I Red. promise. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Red. Keep the faith. Take care of yourself. We love you. I love y'all too, man. All right. Take care. All right, I'm going to the back of the line, switching it up with Jade. That's right, back of the line. Look alive. Stay alert. I'm hopping around tonight. What's on your mind tonight, Jade? Hello. Hi. Hi. I don't know what's going on with my phone. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. What's on your mind? Perfect. Um. Wow. I didn't expect to be called so early. <laughs> but uh, I'm gonna. So I don't know. Every call before me, I have been. Like, oh, yeah, that's something to talk about. That's something to talk about. <laughs> so, but uh, one thing, it, like, about, like, you know, the insecurity generally on the left around, like, it's something I kind of talked about last time, too, is just, like, how to mobilize people and, like, also without, like, you know, infighting and, like, or feeling like because we are trying to build um, mass coalitions and it, which, you know, is going to include some people on the right sometimes like uh i think an important thing to remember is just like if we agree on the same action or the like point of action then like you know like unite for that and then uh by working with people who maybe have different perspectives then like hopefully we can convince them and they, we can like you know draw those connections to like how the system is broken in multiple ways like uh, across the board, you know, and I think people learn best when they're actually engaging in that work and doing it, at least in my experience, that's really how I learned a lot. And mm-hmm. I feel like other people as well. So I think, I think like, that's an important thing, like that we have to be ready to like, if we find people who have the same goal, like mm-hmm. to like unite and do that. And that doesn't mean we have to agree with them on everything or that we have to continue working with them always. Mm -hmm. either Mm -hmm. like you know like do it for the time being and then move on and where you're at the point of departure where where you do disagree and then uh but like you know maintaining those relationships so that we can mobilize when we need to to try to get things done like anything done (laughs) 
Yeah, I thought that was a really insightful point that uh, I think Dr. West made on that recent episode where I asked him, you know, why do you think it is that you managed to maintain so much credibility despite engaging with all kinds of folks that, you know, get a lot of public pushback, have a lot of criticism, you know, justified and otherwise, you know, why, how can, how can it be that you can do an event with Louis Farrakhan and still be accepted in all of these other circles and back and forth and all over the place. And, you know, I do think there was some, you know, one of the things that he said was, you know, when you disagree with someone, this was the clip that we circulated where we were talking about Jamie Dore. He's like, when I agree with Jamie Dore, I righteously support him. When I disagree with him, I tell him that as well. And I make it clear where those lines are. And so I can never be accused of endorsing aspects of another person's worldview that I don't actually endorse. And I think that people don't really recognize the power in that. Like, isn't Mm -hmm. that the whole point of this coalition building? Bernie does this all the time and people loved him for it. If he can team up with, you know, Josh Howley or whatever on whatever foreign policy bill, no one pretends that means that Bernie Sanders is also anti reading the bluest eye or whatever the hell they're up to on these weird culture wars or like trying to tax Disney world into oblivion or whatever it is that they're, I, I don't, I can barely keep track. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and everyone knows like, okay, it's like just for this one thing we're getting together. But for some reason that courtesy or the, the confidence that we have in Bernie not to be like turned into a right winger or go down the wrong path, we don't seem to have that same faith in everyone. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's a confidence issue. I don't know if it's a we've seen two people go down a slippery slope issue. Maybe it's justified. Maybe it's not, depending on the person. But I, it does start to feel like an obstacle when everybody's looking at everyone with such suspicion if there's any kind of coalition building that's done, no matter how clearly the lines and the confines of the particular coalitional bond are drawn. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, I just... I, I think that is a great point and something to remember. And then like with uh, like Samuel mentioned student loans, which I wasn't expecting to talk about, but like I myself, like, uh, you know, my mom's family, she had 11 brothers and sisters. Uh, she's was the first and she's like six, sixth in line. I think like she was the first um, one to go to college at all, like after graduating from high school. And then I think she has one younger sister who did eventually go to college and um, get a teaching degree. Uh, and she did that when I was young because she, you know, separated from my dad and then was a single mom and needing to take care of us. And she did finish nursing school. And then um, like my experience of growing up, like I'm a millennial growing up, like going to school, it was like going to college was the only option. Like that's what we had to do. Like that was like what, you know, in um, our freshman year, they like had a big workbook, like for our like homeroom or whatever, (laughs) that was like, how am I going to get to college? And here's the steps I'm taking Mm -hmm. every year. And you had to fill it in progressively Mm -hmm. and then apply to schools. Mm -hmm. And um I grew up in Washington state, but then I, I went to school in Utah at, at BYU and, uh, my parents, because, you know, my mom had a nursing degree and she'd remarried and, um, my stepdad, like they, they made enough money that I didn't qualify for like Pell grants or like, you know, further student aid, but, um, they didn't make enough money that they could really support me or send money to me. Mm. And, uh, 
So I had to take out student loans and that was like my option. And luckily, you know, like that's why I went to BYU was a big part of it was because I grew up Mormon. I wanted to leave the state, you know, get away from home. And um, the tuition was like comparable to like going to an in-state school, like Mm -hmm. a state school. Mm -hmm. And, um, but then I, uh, had, had crisis of faith left like my Mormonism and stuff while I was at school, which also threatened our education. Mm -hmm. Like, and I was among with group, like a group of people that, you know, felt the same. I was lucky to find them. And, uh, but, you know, like, it was a big risk, like, because we we're like, oh, we could get kicked out of school for this. Uh-huh. Um, and I moved to Salt Lake, like, uh, right at my senior year. And I have one class that was three credits um, that I was short of for my uh, for my bachelor's degree. And then uh, moving to Salt Lake and leaving and stuff like then I was like, I have to I would have to to finish this that I've like taken out thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars in student loans. I'd have to go to a like Mormon church and to like a, a, t- a bishop, which is like a, a, a like a, a, I don't know, the equivalent of a pastor mm-hmm. um, and get like an endorsement saying that I'm going to follow all the rules and everything. And I'm like, I don't feel comfortable lying about this at this point. And do I even want my degree from BYU? Mm-hmm. And do I like, just like that whole crisis. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then I watched, I just saw the uh, rising segment on, on student loans, like just was came up on autoplay again. Like I'd seen it before when it first came out, like, but it just came up on autoplay. And I think it was like Brad was the guy on there. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a point where he says like that complete student loan forgiveness would only like benefit, would benefit the top 40% of earners Mm -hmm. hugely. But I'm thinking also like, you know, like maybe because like those, that tier of people also went to more expensive schools. Like maybe they have higher, loans to begin with for forgiveness and it was complete uh-huh. student forgiveness rather than the ten thousand dollars which is a much larger sum and bigger difference to like people you know like myself or uh-huh. others who are working class and just uh-huh. you know trying to get by like I, I don't know anyway I just like his point about the top 40 percent of earners just like really yeah like, maybe that yeah, no, look, first of all, I appreciate all of your, all of your testimony. I think that there are really important, I see people in the chat saying like, that is extremely relatable. And there's something that's very universal about that experience, despite the particularities of BYU and the religious aspect of the school. But I know there was a guy on the campaign who worked in the video department, this really sweet young kid, black guy, mm-hmm. who went to, um, what's the Oral Roberts one? Uh, Liberty College, Liberty College. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he, we got a scholarship there. Like they have some diversity issues. I think that they, you know, are trying to pull people from other parts of the country and people who aren't necessarily interested in religious education. And it was like the financially smart thing for him to do to go. But it was a horrible cultural experience for him to be one of like a handful of black kids there in a Mm -hmm. very conservative environment. And like these things affect your ability to get your education as well. You know, so it's not the same story that you told, but people act as though making some of these financial choices instead of being able to pick a college based on good fit and what you actually want to study in these kind of more academic and educational choices is not necessarily a good thing. And like, don't ask themselves the question, why is it that richer kids 
get to pick the college that's the best fit for them. And poor kids have to have a tougher time because they just got to go where the money is. And, and like, maybe this isn't like the biggest deal in the world. Obviously there's homelessness and starving kids and I'm not going to argue against any of that. But again, the reason we're talking about this is because this is something that Joe Biden actually has the power to change without needing Congress to get on board. And so, you know, why are we limiting our imagination in these ways? Why are we fighting with ourselves and fighting with our own party and our own base when the, 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 the sky is the limit? And so I really yeah, appreciate you exactly. saying everything that you've said tonight. And I think it really resonates with a lot of people. <laughs> Thank you. And then one other thing about labor and stuff is just uh, like, I, I think that is like, you know, where a lot of us are finding hope right now is like in the labor movement and organization. And um, one amazing coalition that I've seen like kind of form between labor unions and like mass uh, group mobilization is in Chicago with uh, like the campaign for community control of police, where they have like the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression uh, that is leading that campaign. But then like they have the teachers union signed on, they have like a bunch of unions and it's like that cross like network of being able to reach out. They have, I mean, they have churches, they have like all sorts of people who are part of this coalition. And then they've been able to actually pass some legislation in their city. Of course, they had to make concessions because, you know, that's the way it works in electoral politics. But I think like with politics, like focusing on the local level is something that we can do. And, you know, like you can can um, influence who is going to be in your city council or who's going to be your mayor. And then hopefully we can like get some like just grounds level like legislation in your city or in your area that um, can benefit the community. And through doing that, then, you know, like building people power is Mm -hmm. the way that you change that um, power imbalance, because right now the people just are powerless. And I think that's really hard for a lot of us and not sure how to do that or like how to, how to build power, what to do. And, um, but I think it's possible. It's been done. And uh, looking at those local orgs in your area is probably a good idea. And uh, yeah, I just I think that's one way that we can actually impact like our day to day, like living conditions. A hundred percent, Jade. And I think that's part of why you know, I got a little frustrated when when anybody, but you know, when when Dogby was talking about people giving up and checking out, and I'm like, no, no, no. There's all this other stuff, and including local mm-hmm. engagement that people are a hundred percent doing, and that frankly, Republicans stress a lot. That's why they've taken over all the school boards and stuff. You know, like they understand the power mm-hmm. of that local organizing, not just because of the local effect, but because of how empowering it is to a population. Yeah. And so it, it's it's just very. It's in, I'm like insulted when I hear from yeah. you guys how engaged you are and people are acting like you're like, you know, uh, just completely checked out, you know, get playing video games in somebody's basement and you're working so hard. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, I'm inspired by it. So thank you again, Jade. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for letting me call and appreciate everything you do. And I've really appreciated all the previous callers and all, all the callers. You got a great, great group of followers. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more, Jade. In fact, I'm going okay. to keep the faith and I'm going to bring up Jaw, who's the very patient at the front of the line. So Jaw, and I'm going to bring, I see RBN in the chat. So I'm going to bring you up to speak. Um, I will uh, feel free to chime in whenever. And Jaw, 
What's on your mind? Hello, my darling. How are you? Oh, you're so sweet. I'm doing very well. Much better now. How are you this evening? I'm doing all right, Bree. I, I am for sure. Um, I, I want to shout out Maggie because um, that read that she gave, <laughs> honey. Okay, <laughs> that was fantastic. I love it, and it really got me thinking about how much um, we all do that to a certain extent with various things, specifically politically. Um, but it's just a thought; it hasn't been um, really hammered out yet. But what I did want to um, do was just do a little bit of uh, more of a deep dive pertaining to the whole third party versus um, reforming the Dems in the realm of, you know, electoralism, mm -hmm. of course, not as far as all the other things that we could be done, which you guys just were talking about. Um, so I think I'm just going to front load this really quickly, Breeze, just so that you can just respond and go crazy. Um, the picture that Dr. Zogby painted for me was like the very case against reform in that it just kind of was like, oh, well, this is the best we could do is um, incrementalism and like two, two impludium, amen, that's it, right? And quite frankly, I think that's pathetic and you've done a really good job at describing all the ways that it's pathetic and with, with what you're talking about with um, people that get grandfathered into, uh, I forgot the word that you use, but basically all the things that we refuse to address in this society um, mm -hmm. that are plaguing people. Um, you know, we're just supposed to be left up to endure the long arc of justice, which I'm not necessarily convinced actually exists. So there's well, I, that. I mean, it has to be, it's not organic. If the long arc of justice, justice bends to, or long arc of history bends toward justice, it's because people are pushing it, not because we're just absentmindedly assuming it's going to bend in the right direction. What a concept, Brie. And they be trying to act like it just, that's just the arc. Like it's the shape of the damn universe. Yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> so for me with this issue, and tr trust me, during this whole conversation, I was getting PTSD flashbacks of the whole Noam Chomsky thing, which like had me like, you know, putting my head in the mm -hmm. pillow and maybe not lifting my head back up. It was, it was difficult. So it was mm -hmm. this a little bit. There's a strange ambiguity in my mind when it comes to this. Like, I can't quite settle on one thing, and it's because I can't quite weigh out the options of effectiveness over long periods of time. And I don't think anybody really can, but I mean, someone has an imagination for it. So as far as us, you know, even approaching the goals of maybe catching up with the rest of the developed world with our policies, you know, uh, do you think, what What do you see as the timeline for both paths, I guess, is what I'd like to ask. You mean like the inside versus the outside? <clears throat> yes. So I thought this was actually a really important kind of um, point that came out of my conversation with Crystal recently huh. was the, the idea that it's not that I'm like so confident about exactly what the outside path looks like. But the inside path is so increasingly bleak that it gives me more of a feeling that, well, of course we got to keep trying this outside path. Like we got to just keep throwing stuff at the wall and see what, see what sticks. So the inside yeah. path, you know, it looked more promising before Bernie was shut down for a second time, before oh. we had this evidence of, you know, that, that, um, Dr. Zogby brought to the podcast today about how corrupt the DNC is. 
all the things we learned about the DNC in the context of the 2016 race. Before we heard from Ash Kalra about how even in California with an overwhelmingly Democratic legislature, they can't pass uh, the Medicare for All statewide bill. Uh, before, you know, we saw that the largest social justice movement in American history with people in the streets had absolutely no electoral impact in 2020. You know, oh. before I talked to any number of progr- – I mean, you've been here for this whole journey that I've been on for the past year and a half. I did not come to this lightly. I, mm-hmm. like, I, I hope you guys have all been hearing me asking <laughs> in the most goodest of faith <laughs> – like to please tell me, please give me a reason why I should still believe in the traditional path. I don't want to be hubristic. I don't want to pretend to know things. I want to defer to experts. I want to like take advantage of all the expertise that I have the privilege to access in my position. Tell me why we should keep trying the same path. I've been at, I've been begging people to explain to me why. Mm-hmm. And after almost two years of it, I'm feeling pretty good about confidently saying. There's not a good argument because even if I feel like we're in a worse position in some ways than we were in 2018, because in 2018, we didn't have this um, um, coordinated, well-defined, targeted apparatus that is so good at derailing progressive candidates without the Democratic Party officially having to lift a finger. We didn't have it's almost worse that we live in a world where we have a congressional progressive caucus led by someone who was perceived to be a legitimate progressive and squad adjacent and Pramila Jayapal, who is the oh, one oh. that has been reported to be the figure that convinced the other squad, mem- excuse me, other squad members to not force the vote on a $15 minimum wage, who reportedly is the person who, you know, you know, or had to have been the person who okayed the progressive caucus endorsing Chantel Brown who did not speak out against the use of dark money against Nina Turner in the first or second run or Summer Lee or what happened with um, uh, India Walton or any of it. It's almost worse that we we have some kind of progressive infrastructure now and all they effectively do is legitimize the system. Let me tell you. I had, God rest her soul, I had um, Lonnie Guinier, my one year of law school. Lonnie Guinier, she just passed away. We had her son on the podcast, um, Nico oh. Bowie. He's now a, himself a professor at Harvard Law. He was a year behind me, let me tell you. Sometimes you go back at these reunions and look around and you're like, what am I doing with my life? Oh, but- listen, Bree, my 20th high school is coming up this year. <laughs> Quit playing. All I knew was that he was just this cute young boy that used to be in the gym sometimes. And I'd be like, who is that boy running around here with a Yale shirt on? You know he's not allowed to do that. It turns out it was Lonnie Guineer's son. And Lonnie Guineer, I when I was an undergraduate, I was so sad because she took a sabbatical my senior year and I never got to take her class. And I was so grateful to be able to get back into the school so I could take an elective. And it was the first elective I took. And she, she taught this class called Race, Religion, and Law. Lonnie Guineer was Harvard Law's first black female professor, first woman professor of color, despite what Elizabeth Warren will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's not just a shady joke. Literally, the Harvard Crimson described Elizabeth Warren as Harvard, Univ- Harvard Law's first female professor of color. Of course and they did. She 100% did, and it's because of what she, how she represented herself. But that's a whole other story. Uh, the point of the matter is that I, I really admire Lonnie Guineer because she was picked to be, I think, attorney general in the Clinton administration. And Clinton completely threw her under the bus once in her confirmation hearings. It came out that she said, you know, actually good progressive things. 
So he threw her under the bus. She didn't get the position. Obviously, she ended up finding on her feet. But I was always wanting to take her to class because I knew of her. My mom had talked to her about her glowingly as a kind of a progressive icon. And when I started law school, it was in the fall of 2008. And Obama had just become president. And we were all starry-eyed and like, oh, my God, the world is going to change, blah, blah, blah. And I remember sitting in her class, and she said, she told us, Barack Obama being the president is simply affirming an unequal system and causing people to forget that it is structurally flawed. And I thought to myself, well, this is one cynical broad. <laughs> like, how come she doesn't get it? This is too harsh on Obama. Like, da, 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 da. And you know what? She was obviously 100% right. And in some ways, I feel like, I mean, like, that is what's happening with these progressives. And it's not because they are necessarily bad people themselves or whatever, but their presence in Congress without taking the adversarial approach that makes it very, very clear how different they are from the system and how much they object to the system that they're a part of, ultimately serves Uh the function of validating that system. Uh And so I think there's a very strong argument that we are in a worse place today than we were in 2018, now that all these people are in office and silent. Silent at what happened to Nina Turner, silent at what happened to India Walton, silent at what... Uh, Mama Bear says to make you cry on the House floor, silent about um, what's going on um, with the $15 minimum wage bill, silent about force of vote, silent, 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 silent about all the things that we've learned over the past year and a half of the Biden administration. (sighs) Well, (laughs) you just laid it all out there like like a quilt. It's hard. I I don't want that to be true. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I, I don't I don't I don't want to feel bad. I don't I don't want to say negative things about any of the squad members. I what uh-huh. I really appreciate about Sabby coming on um rising the other day is that she made the Which point. Which I love. Well, I, I, I thought she did beautifully and I will say like some of the producers, including some of the conservative um staffers, really liked her approach too. And I think that's so valuable to be able to speak in a way and present your left ideals in a way that is not alienating, frankly, to people across the political spectrum. So I really hope she comes back. But one of the things that she said that I really liked was like, she said, like, I was a supporter of AOC. I, I really was hopeful about her. I voted for, or maybe not like literally voted for her, but I, you know, gave to her campaign and supported her when she came onto the scene. This is not the sound of a hater speaking. This is the sound of someone who is a believer who's now disappointed. Hey, Bree, this is uh, uh, CJ. Um, I wanted to chime in here. This this speaks to what Jimmy has said many times, Jimmy Dora, that is, and what RBN kind of says also. Mm-hmm. It's, it's worse to have somebody supposedly elected on your team to out there to get to work as a progressive and them not even try than us for us to not even have anybody there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a worse outcome because the expectation is that you're doing something. So you're, you're not only not achieving the goal, but you're depressing uh, any sort of engagement or, or, or interest in the political system. I, I completely agree. I completely agree. It, it, it tacitly, affirms the validity of something that is broken and that we should be working to fix, but no one's going to fix it. There was an article today actually by Sam Adler bell, who I've complimented on the show before for his pieces. And this again, isn't haterade talking. I hope he comes on the show sometime soon, (laughs) but he wrote a, he wrote a piece. Did you guys see this in New York magazine today? Let me see if I can pull it up real quick. 
Sam Adler, Bell, New York, Mag. And he and, and Sirota were getting into it on Twitter a little bit today um, because it was about uh, progressives and whether or not they are um, – basically, they won't take the W, you know, uh, when it comes to either the um, Inflation Reduction Act and the climate aspects of the bill or student debt uh, – well, it would have to be a W and not a V. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it has you to be know? a win and not a surrender. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the the, the critique that um, so the, the article is called "Why Can't the Left Take the W," and um, he he basically says, uh, you know, here's a paragraph. First, uh, President Biden signed into law the most significant climate legislation in U.S. history. The bill passed under the midterm friendly moniker Inflation Reduction Act and packaged with, a new, with new ACA subsidies and Medicare prescription drug benefits includes $369 billion to scale up the renewable energy sector, tens of billions of dollars dedicated to frontline communities, blah, 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 blah. And yet the IRA contains no measures to meaningfully fetter the fossil fuel industry and several dirty energy measures, blah, blah, blah. So he says good things about how it's like not actually that great. Um but then he says, it can be difficult in times like this to walk the line between cynicism and naivete. Can we claim our partial victories without generating complacency? Can we lament their sometimes insulting insufficiencies without indulging in despair? I spoke to two people who think we can and must. Daniel Sherrill, a longtime climate activist organizer, uh, climate movement organizer, who helped push the IRA across the finish line, and Asha Taylor, co-founder of the Debt Collective, who we know here on the pod uh, for student debt reasons. Uh, you have to do both unabashedly, says Sherelle. On the celebration front, it makes sense to be like, fuck yeah, this is a huge historic thing that wouldn't have happened without decades of climate movement organizing, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, he later quotes um, David Sirota as more pessimistic and says, uh, uh, blah, 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 blah. Failing to take credit would mean forgoing the opportunity to politicize the beneficiaries of the law's investments. Where's the David Sirota part? Sorry. Anyway, he and David Sirota were going back and forth on Twitter. I won't bore you with reading this thing out loud. Where David was feeling like these kind of articles ultimately serve to, no matter how many caveats you put in and how, how many moments you, at which you say, yeah, I didn't go far enough, it ultimately serves to shame progressives for asking for more. And ultimately, oh, we should all be engaged in the project of p- applying as much pressure as possible to demand more. And, and not like just Bell's, more, but yeah. mm-hmm. like uh, demanding what's actually adequate, like in the first place yes. for like, I don't know, <laughs> preserving uh, the ecosystem that we, you know, by which we live, little things like that, you know? Yes. 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 What, what the moment demands. Yes. And, you know, Tim Miller Bell was saying he was trying to write a balanced article about the difficulty of how to both claim the victory in a way that gives you more power, like to be able to say, yes, I won this, and this is why your polls are up by it, and this is why you should do more. That's a different kind of power, and I think he's right about that. But yeah. ultimately, you know, I understand where David's coming from because the effect of the article, I think, is ultimately – like the article doesn't – the article could be framed, and I tweeted at him, and I explained this. The article could have been framed as, you know – why is the Biden administration basically expecting plaudits for doing less than what it promised? He uses, for example, the fact that black people disproportionately benefit from student debt cancellation in his article. I said, well, if you're going to leverage black people like that, it's also true that Biden promised to cancel all historically black college and university debt for people making under $125,000 a year. And has completely thrown that under the bus. 
Moreover, he promised to cancel all public university debt, which black people also disproportionately attend. And he didn't, he didn't do that either. So this was an article that could have informed people about that. But instead, you used black people as basically a bully pulpit to shame good liberal white readers, I guess, into giving uh-huh. Biden plaudits. And isn't that kind of gross? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Short answer. I don't know. I feel like Biden be getting away with all this stuff because, like, I don't know, the excuses machine that is always running where it's like, oh, well, you know, this is people have really just accepted that this is pretty much as far as things go. Just mm-hmm. just like going back to Zogsby. I just said his name wrong. Zogsby. It's OK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he's like, oh, but, the, you know, the stone, it's just, you know, we know it's going to roll up to the bottom of the hill. But we got to fix the stone, blah, 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 blah. So I. People, people really just accept that sort of that. That's the spectrum for which we can even have things. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know how to get away from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I mean, and that's part of why I think these moments of labor militancy that we're in right now are so inspiring, and why I think that the folks over at RBN are so right to see the opportunity that a general strike and the you know presents. You know, because yeah. it. There is so much more, almost an infinite amount that can be gained in a much shorter timeline, to be honest, from labor militancy than from all of this legislative miracle role. Like, and, and, and look, I don't want to be, I want to be sensitive to the fact that I am not a railroad worker. My salary isn't on the, the chopping block. I'm not the one that could be forced into, you know, to, could be fired or has to endure the, the stoppage in pay that a strike entails and all those kinds of things. And I'm certainly not telling anybody to do or trying to advise anybody. But it is also true that few industries have as much power to grind the economy to the halt as railroad workers. Uh That we have all kind of been hoping for a moment like this, even if we were in sectors that can't really strike or don't have as much power in striking as they do or aren't unionized. So what can the rest of us do to really capitalize on this moment, right? Because, like, do you think that uh, you know other other people in the labor force with with different occupations uh, you know should like what what should we all do would that harm or hurt the cause specifically for the railroad workers trying to i'm not an organizer graft yeah so if there's an organizer out there who wants to tell me that this is stupid i'm open to hearing it i won't take any offense but something Uh that i've been hinting at for a year and a half now and which i'm willing to say very clearly now is that i wish I wish we would talk more about strike funds because for all of the money that we gave to Bernie and stuff, if someone told me right now, hey, these 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 railroad workers who are organized in a way that my industry is not, like I'm a podcaster or whatever, but in a way that a lot of our industries are not, <laughs> and so we can't strike and we don't have that power, but we want to offer support. Here's a strike fund. Here, If we get to this amount of money, this is how long they can hold out. Let me tell you, the way that I would drop $1,000 in there right now. <laughs> yeah? Like – for what it means for our long-term benefit, if they like, if they if they say these are the things that we'll demand if you guys fill this strike fund up, yeah. hell's bells. Okay, let's yeah. do this. You you can get us universal health care if I just put some money into this into the strike fund and help you guys be able to subsist and feed your families and pay your rent while you're holding out. Let's do this. You ain't said nothing but the word, Bree. That sounds that sounds logical to me at this point, especially with. 
how I'm all how we are feeling about electoralism right now. So. And that's and that's what uh, RBN absolutely promotes. That that is that is you know in the same area of what we're trying saying is the way we need to move forward. Because you're talking about, I can't remember the number that was donated to progressives. You're talking about several hundred million dollars that was donated. I forget the cycle and, and the numbers, but well, just think of that half of that money, mm-hmm. right? If even yeah. 25% of that money was put into a strike fund, what we can do to sustain while we fight. And Bree, uh, Nick is in the somewhere. He told me he's somewhere in there. If you want to get him. What do you what do you guys why do you think that these you know like why aren't people giving to strike funds more often like what is what's the hold up what what is the snag with people if you could name it people don't know that there is a such thing yeah they don't know that it exists yeah okay good to know people don't even know he might be in the list should we do it okay well if you uh, Nick, if you want to come up, no pressure. Go ahead and get in the chat queue, and I'll and I'll pull you up. But yeah, I, I think that people people someone said was like, should we do an episode on how uh, you unionize? And I think yes. I mean, we've done it before. We did it with um, Jane McAlevey, and we did it with some other folks back when we were talking about the Bessemer Union protests and stuff like that. So in. And I did some great, we did some great work on the Bernie campaign and put some videos out that are still out there. But yeah, we we have to keep doing that because on a basic level, like people don't even understand the point of unions. Like this is stuff that re-education that has to be done because union density is so low. It used to be that everybody's parent was in a union and everyone understood. Like no one understands anymore. So people okay, don't even okay. understand the basics of how to union. And myself included, I just learned all this shit on the Bernie campaign. Like I'm not trying to be holier than thou. But like it's a really <laughs> basic level of education about how this even happens, why it's important, what the power, like how where the power comes from. And then so I'm hearing that, there like, needs to be an educational branch to bad faith, like a, a bad faith education. That's what well, I'm hearing. A 100%. <laughs> like the point about funding before that whoever made it, like Black Lives Matter, we all like criticized and we're on that media cycle of Black Lives Matter having gotten that $90 million during 2020, $60 million of which is outstanding and nobody knows where it is. And nobody's running the org and nobody knows what's going on. A world where someone grabs the reins and is like, look, we're about to Fred Hampton this. We're about to start education programs. We're about to give school lunch to kids. We're about to like actually be in communities and do this kind of work with all of that money that exists. There's so much money there. And where would we actually, where Black Lives Matter stands in solidarity with railway workers and understands the opportunity of this moment and stood with the people in Bessemer and stood with Chris Smalls and were like, showing real allyship with all of the the nurse nurse strike and the teacher strikes and all of these starbucks actions that are going on across the country that's powerful because all of these neolibs have already thrown their hat in with blm at least in principle and put put in their avatar hashtag whatever next to a little bumblebee ukraine emoji or whatever (laughs) so on some (laughs) level it's going to be at least awkward for them to disentangle themselves from that so suddenly uh-huh. we are like forcing a level of solidarity because of the work that Black Lives Matter and the goodwill, frankly, that Black Lives Matter has already engendered with with so many communities. Yep. Uh, we should be co-opting things that are already out there, just like they'd be trying to co-opt everything, every good idea that comes out of, you know, out of the left, yeah. out of the progressive left. Yeah. Girl, somewhere over the rainbow. Look. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna hop up off here so you can get to some other people, Bree. Um, yeah, great episode. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for stimulating this conversation. It's been really great. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Bree. All right. Keep the faith, job. You too. All right. Ciara, I'm coming back to the front of the line. I know you were getting a little nervous that I had forgotten about you guys up front, but I hadn't. <laughs> can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. What's on your mind tonight? Hi, Brie. Um, my name is Kira. Um, oh, Kira, I'm sorry. No problem. Um, I was like dying in the line because you brought up um, that you donate $1,000 to a strike fund, and I have a strike fund for you. Oh, I was where? actually. Which- yeah, I'm, um, I was actually on work with workers today on the strike line um, out in San Leandro. So the largest strike right now happening um, in the United States, I believe, is 2,000 mental health care workers mm. um, it, uh, working for Kaiser out in California. And they've been on strike for five weeks now. This is their fifth week. Um, so they're really feeling... Um, like you know the pain of the strike at this point in uhw strike fund yes so please anyone listening and and you too brie um if you can go to nuhw.org slash kaiser let's help them them right now yeah nuh yeah please help them um i was talking to workers say they had bargaining um last night and the day before and Kaiser is not moving. So just some background. Um, mental health care is obviously like in crisis right now. Um, and these workers are, they're not really um, bargaining about wages anymore. They've, they've already gotten a proposal from Kaiser that they are completely happy with. Um, the issue, or I wouldn't say completely happy with, but they're willing to accept. The issue is that they don't have enough time in the day to see patients and see them in the right way. Um, so they're asking Kaiser to basically allow them um, more time to do administrative tasks so they can document um, cor- correctly and also um, hire more staff. And um, a lot of their demands are really about hiring more staff so patients can get the care that they need. Um, so anyway, um, please, like, if you're listening to this, please donate to their funds because people are done. Thank you. (laughs) Done and done. And also Um, like, this is, but this is the thing, like we, Bernie, Bernie donate, Bernie was able to, sorry, fundraise more money than anybody else in the democratic race off of small dollar donations. I think that there is a real power. There is a power in people feeling like it's not just my little piece of money, that it's an mm-hmm. amount that amounts to something like tangible and good. Mm-hmm. But for that to exist, that that kind of like community sensibility about the donations that existed around the Bernie campaign, someone has to create that sense. And that is, I think, part of the critique of some of the squad members is that they have the platform to help us feel like we're all part of something bigger again in the support of um, this Kaiser IBHS strike fund or the, um, the, tra- the rail workers or teacher strikes or whatever it is that's happening. And that isn't, I mean, it's not happening. Like, like Black Lives Matter raised $90 million in a summer. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me that at this moment, if all of the progressives, Bernie and the squad and all of them got together and said, 
they are, they have a tentative deal, but I want them to know that I support them going for broke for really holding out. Yeah. And I talked to someone in the union and they said that if we were able to raise this amount of money, they would be willing to demand more, more things that would actually trickle down for the benefit of the American public. Yeah. And I, I look, I've been wanting this to happen when, when, um, and we were in the, the throngs of COVID and I had, um, Oh God, my brain just turned off uh, the, from the flight attendants union, Sarah Nelson, Sarah Nelson was on the podcast mm-hmm. back then. I wasn't as bold and confident and I was thinking I should defer more to people who know more, you know, but the back of my mind during that interview was, gosh, you can't do anything. If you don't have planes, <laughs> can't fly a flight attendant saying no. Yeah. You know, and it's hard. Like, yeah. obviously I'm not trying to ask any group of people to so, so put you know nail themselves to the cross for the rest of us, but I am I'm more inclined to make that demand or like suggest that maybe they could like take one for the team if the if we we pitch in. Yeah, I mean, and also the thing is too, I feel like with or- like the workers are doing it for themselves as well. I mean, you know that <laughs> like we're not asking them, and that's something about organizing. You know, it's if you're a professional organizer, you know, you're not asking people to do things for you. You're, you're asking it to asking people to do it for themselves. Um, but sorry, that's a little bit of a tangent, I guess, like in response to what you're saying, I feel like, I mean, the issue with like the, the rail workers strike is like, there seems to be the will from the workers Mm -hmm. to do the strike. I mean, this gets into a larger issue, but like, it seems like the union made a deal maybe that the workers aren't happy with and may, I mean, we'll see mm-hmm. if they vote to approve it, but that like feeds into a larger issue of just general, like, like issues with unions in terms of like democratic unionism and like corruption in the labor movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that I think is like something that people are trying to, work on but I think like actually it feeds into like your discussion about third parties and like why I think a third party is so necessary because if you look back like in in history and like when the labor movement was so successful like in the early like 20th century you had like leftists and the communist party specifically mm-hmm. Um, you know, with a strong party line on, like, the political issues and the labor issues, and they were, like, influencing the labor movement and mm-hmm. in the labor movement and organizing people and making sure the working class was educated about the importance of, like, staying organized and holding unions accountable. So in order for the labor movement to be successful, I really do think we need a third party that can do that political uh, alignment and education around how to make like the labor movement work for the working class. And what that means is like workers staying organized because like ultimately any institution is like capable of being corrupted Mm -hmm. under capitalism, Mm -hmm. but like you need to have, that's why you need the political backbone to ensure that workers stay organized, like don't let up. Um, So I don't know. I think that's interesting. And like, I feel, I don't know. I I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but. um, Just that you're right. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I think like also the discussion about like third party versus democratic, like inside versus outside strategy. Like one of the things that your conversation yesterday with the doctors or I forget how to pronounce his name, but Mm -hmm. Zogvi, like made me think more about was just like, I think like I think one of my frustrations sometimes listening to people talk about, oh, let's do inside strategy, let's keep doing what we're doing, is that it doesn't feel like they're taking serious, like, doing the inside strategy. Like, Mm. if you're going to do it seriously, like, okay, like, let's get together, let's organize people around, Mm. like, what we think the Democratic Party should be and should look like, Mm -hmm. and, like, let's have some type of political line that we believe in and want the, and let's like bring people into our coalition and start organizing and have some strategic plan for changing the democratic party. But Mm -hmm. at that point, isn't that just like, a like that's what it's going to take to change the democratic party. Like Mm -hmm. it's not going to be some anarchist, like natural takeover. Like you need to be organized, but, and, if that point of organization, you might as well do a third party, like in my mind. And I think that would be an easier route because you can start from scratch and you can like kind of do away with the bad reputation that the democratic party has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they yeah. want us to stop talking about force the vote. I'm sorry, but the, to be <laughs> honest, that was the inside strategy. Mm-hmm. Like you guys wanted us to be invested in the inside strategy. Okay. That, that was the kind of thing that is useful to have insiders to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. You got elected. We incited you in there. You're in the inside. And there's this magical thing that happened where there's just enough of you to be just bigger than the gap between the number of Democrats and Republicans in the House, which mm-hmm. means you have the actual literal power to do anything, to really gum up the works from the inside. You know who's good at the inside strategy? Joe Manchin, Kirsten mm-hmm. Zinema. But you proved to us, like, look, this is not personal. This is not me saying, oh, you know, photoshopping AOC's face onto a donkey or whatever the silly things that Republicans do. Like, <laughs> like this isn't a this isn't like a personal issue. But you, like, we tried it. Like, you, their presence there is literally evidence of our investment in the inside strategy, and their failure to do anything with it with the unique opportunity that this year and the margins in the house presented was evidence of the fact that they are not actually going to effectuate an inside strategy. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you're going to keep begging us to believe like, you know, it's like an R Kelly sound like, no, Mm -hmm. like we're over him. We're over that. (laughs) Yeah. You, you, you already told us you weren't going to do it. So like, why do you think that we're not going to listen to what you said? Definitely. I mean, this is a little different, but like in the labor, like in labor organizing, you do what's called like a structure test. Like, mm-hmm. like before you make big actions, you ask workers to do little ones. So you ask mm-hmm. them to like do like wear pins to the workplace that has their union logo on it. Mm-hmm. And like, it feels like force the vote a little bit was a structure test. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if we're failing that, like, we need to like rethink we need to like I don't know I that is more evidence to me that we need to go and and start being serious about forming an outside party 
but yeah, that's very, that's very well put. And I had forgotten uh, when um, Jane McAlevey uh, was on the show last summer. Mm-hmm. She talked about that, and you're reminding me that it, we're well overdue to have some union folks on the show. I, I emailed her within the last couple of months to see if she could come back, but she was busy. But you've reminded me that I need to follow up. So thank you so much yeah. for calling in. This has felt really productive. Yeah, awesome. And sorry, one more plug, and, and then I'll I'll yeah, hop of off. Um, you spoke about and like learning about like how to organize a union and like resources for people, and I don't know. Maybe you were talking more like comms wise, but um, the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee is like a project of the United Electrical Workers and the DSA, and they're working. Um, it's like a volunteer organization that trains workers on how to organize their own workplace and take the steps to form a union. Um, and anyway, that's like a good resource for people um, to learn more. And um, I think like has a really um, more like has a concern about making sure the labor movement is rank and file and more democratic. So mm. anyway, um, I'll hop off. Thanks for your time. Thank you for that, Kira. Keep mm-hmm. the faith. Yeah. All right. Um, I got a call on Darlene uh, with this adorable poodle avatar. I can't help myself. Can you unmute yourself for us, Darlene? Hi. How are you? Can you hear me? I can. What's on your mind tonight, Darlene? Oh, I'm so glad to get to call you. I'm a first time caller. I thought so. I've been, I've been try. I listened to you for a long time since the beginning when you had your um your other co-host co-host. Mm-hmm. So I've been listening to a long time. Thank you, and I've been And I've been listening. I mean, I got into the um, progressive movement probably around the end of 2016. I didn't find out till Bernie until after the primaries. Mm. So then after that, I be, when I found out about him and what happened to him and how they cheated him. And then I started watching, I mean, all the progressive shows and TYT and um, Majority Report and all of them. And I stopped watching all of them. Like my favorite now today that you have them on there. And I was glad to see you on there today was RBN. Yeah, mm. my favorite. And I Love watched that. them. And yeah, I like what they have to say, you know, and I like what you guys have to say. I mean, I'm older than you guys, so you are uh, in your 30s, I'm, I'm in my 50s. And it's and I just love that, you know, it's the same thing. I've been hearing all these same things for this breath of the years. And like the other day you had on Crystal Ball, mm-hmm. and, I, and I used to like her. I really did, but watching watching her on you really had it was another eye opener. Like you know, it's why are you trying to fight? Why are people trying to get this? The going back through the Democratic Party, I don't understand it. We watched Bernie Sanders get cheated twice. Donna Brazil wrote there, and she's told in the story that he was cheated. When mm-hmm. you and you listen to Combo Couch, they talked about how twenty and twenty he was cheated. So what does she think if Marianne Williamson runs that she's not going to get cheated? The last time they would only let her on the stage once. You're not going to win going through the Democratic Party. They told you they can put up who they want. So I don't understand why anybody wants to run through it anymore. It really doesn't make any sense in that part. Like, it's like, you yeah. know, pe- crazy well, people. CJ, I wonder if you'll weigh in here too, because the, the thing is, I think I'm a little bit different is that I do think, I, I think about how Nick sometimes says how being a part of, you know, knocking doors for Bernie, it taught him things that radicalized him in certain ways. It made him a better organizer. 
And so there is this part of me that does think that there is value in people running and the broader public, the same way, Darlene, you said that you didn't find out about Bernie until after the primary and then were kind of radicalized when you find out about how the Democratic Party kept him down. I think there's probably some benefit in progressives running and definitely there being a progressive challenger in 2024 so that more people can have that experience and more people can realize the failures of the Democratic Party and more people can learn about organizing through the context of a campaign. I think that has value. But I just think that that doesn't supplant the desire to, the, or the need rather, to do outside work, outside of electoralism and outside of the Democratic Party. What do you think about that, CJ? Uh, uh, it, I mean, it, it can have value, but I think the value campaign has been done and done. Like we've reached mm-hmm. a level to where there's not much else you can do to educate the population, for example, on healthcare. We're already at an 80% level of approval. Mm-hmm. Like there's not, there's not much else in many other areas, income inequality, the $15 minimum raise, like there's on and on. So I would say Nina Turner was our last or was the last progressive. That's, that's how I call it. She was the last progressive um, to run and have the full support of of the left um, or have the most support of the left as a progressive Democrat. Mm-hmm. I don't think any other progressive Democrat running in a state on a federal Y is going to get anything close to what she got the first time. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just people like this game it's over the justice democrat justice democrat uh uh like uh, experiment we've seen it like aoc we can't unsee the things that aoc voting for nato we can't unsee that so and and you know pramila jayapal and all the things that she's done to sort of uh, 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 derail the progressive agenda, all the the hand-wringing she's doing with the Democratic leadership, like, that has an effect. That has a long-lasting effect where people, the most enthusiastic people, the ones that's donating, the ones that's marching, the one that's mm-hmm. phone-baking, those are the people you turning off mm-hmm. by this chummying up to the Democratic Party. And I think in my opinion, that was illustrated in Nina Turner's second race because it was a lot closer in the first one. And the only thing that to me explains the distance getting larger is that the, she lost the people who were most enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm inclined to agree. And I hope to have her on the podcast soon because I have had a conversation with her relatively recently um, about some of this. And I kind of made those points. Because I do think that there is a narrative about um, how, you know, the fact that she did worse the second time than the first time is a demonstration of somehow how bad her, you know, have a bowl of shit comments hurt her. And I would argue otherwise. I would argue that, in fact, she won the same day votes. You know, if the only the, vote, the only votes that were counted were the people who voted on Election Day, Nina Turner would have won. And I think that the election day was after all of the negative advertising. What Nina Turner yeah. lost was the early ballot, was the early votes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that there is some narrative distortion about what exactly it was that hurt her. And my observation was the second time around, she didn't fundraise as well. 
she didn't have as much support from people across the country who knew and loved her from the Bernie Sanders campaign. And there was some frustration about whether or not there was any evidence that she was going to be the fighter that people wanted in Congress. And I think that, you know, people need to speak to that and not assume that they can survive with losing the fiery passion of the left base. The left base is all you have, in my view. The left base is what fueled Bernie Sanders, both financially and in terms of volunteer efforts, door knocking and all of that stuff. And we don't have super PACs. We don't have anything else but our base to fuel us. And I think it's a very dangerous game to start to try to rely on a more moderate base when you're a progressive and you don't have that moderate Democratic Party infrastructure to buoy you the way that a Chantel Brown is going to have. But I'm sorry, go go ahead, um, Darlene. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just uh, one other thing I wanted to say when you were talking before. I think if Bernie would have, if it would have been Bernie against Trump, if Bernie, I mean, if it was Bernie, Hillary, and Trump, Bernie would have won. Yeah. Because people would have came out for him. And I don't understand, like, when they say, why are you running as a Democrat? Why would you run as it? They won, they lost, they're going to cheat. So run as an independent. Run you so you could get to that stage and it's you, the, the, the Republican, the Democrat, and the independent. Or there's 60% more independents in this country than there is Republican and Democrat. So what makes people think that they, people wouldn't go vote for the independent? They would. And one other thing I have to say, if mm-hmm. you do uh, another panel, you have to do you, CJ, Robbie, and Batia. It would be hysterical, <laughs> all four of you. I That's fascinating. <laughs> oh, oh, you and CJ would give them a run for their money, but it would be nice. You know, you, both of you know how to talk. And Shabby, too. You all know how to talk to people and, and, and be polite. I couldn't do that. Don't get me wrong. It wouldn't be me. I would be like, I would be like Rome. I would curse people out. So I would be that way. <laughs> but you guys do that, and I think it would be good if you could see that and let them see the ways. Because when the stupid shit that they were saying on 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 student debt was like, that's because you people grow up with with parents who have money. It's mm. easy for you to say that when you don't have the money. It's like. And I don't think they're bad people. I just think that it's if you don't grow up like that, you don't know it. You mm-hmm. just don't know it. You don't know. And and I'm kind of like you, um, Brianna, where I see my family struggle and now I'm doing better. But I know what it's like. I, get, mm-hmm. I have family around me who it's like. So it's like maybe, I, you know, I'm not doing it personally, but I can see people around me. And, mm-hmm. and, and I get upset when I hear these people. And I don't, like I said, I don't think they're bad people. I just don't think... They don't experience it, so they don't know. Yeah, and that's all I can yeah. say. Look, I think that's a banger panel. I'm obsessed with panels. I'm obsessed with like putting people like together and contemplating what social dynamics are going to play out in interesting ways. <laughs> I would, I would love to see that. Let, let me see what I can do, Darlene. I, and maybe bring Coleman in too. The other guy, the Republican Coleman, he was yeah. good too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I love the idea of those kinds of mixes. Panels are a little mm-hmm. bit of a, a strategic, like a rather uh, not strategic, that's not one, um, logistical pain in the rear. I gotta say, for someone who's kind of like a one one woman shop here, with obviously producer Armand who does such an amazing job actually editing these episodes. But um, let me see, let me see what I can do for you, Darlene, because like you've given me something <laughs> to think about. Hey, hey Bree, well, can I like, chime in about? I want to chime in about Nina one more time because yeah, I think there's there's another uh, layer to this, mm-hmm. um, and that is 
ask yourself what what attracts those that don't need no Nina to Nina. It's the way she speak. What was her her nickname? She was a dragon slayer. It's the way she speak. But running as a Democrat, she was stifled in how she can speak. So you're you're taking your greatest asset in the way you speak. And it's not just you speaking confidently. It's the words she chooses to pick while she's speaking that inspires people. And that was completely wiped gone. Or, or I'm not going to say completely, but a lot of that was gone. And then when she lost the race and then, um, you know, Roe v. Wade came down, then it came back. The old the old Nina that I love and I, I quote tweeted a lot of her quotes like mm-hmm. this is the Nina we wanted to see in the primary. Mm-hmm. And that is another reason why. And I think Kashama pointed this out in your interview. Another reason why running in a Democratic Party is so you have to twist yourself in, like what you're saying. This party is terrible one day and then the next day you're saying vote for me. I'm one of those people in that party. Mm-hmm. Like it's such a, a weird dynamic mm-hmm. um, and a weird strategy when you think about it. And voters notice that like on some level, I think that sometimes people are a little too smart by half and they think, well, voters, you know, they're not paying that close attention. They don't see these inconsistencies. Say what you want about the Republicans. There's a certain ideological cohesiveness to a lot of that garbage that they're spewing right now, right? Like it all locks together and it feels like a narrative that makes sense. Trickle down economics. The Democrats don't really fight for you because they're too busy fighting for very small niche groups in this country who are already more privileged and better off than you. You know, like all of this stuff, if it fits together. Like, it makes sense. I don't agree with it, but it hangs together in a way that's logically consistent. The Democrats are all over the place. I was just saying this to someone today. Like, I don't like, I don't like Ron DeSantis, but I could write you a nut graph right now. I could write you like an intro paragraph to an essay about what he believes in without even thinking about it. What he stands for, who he's fighting for, and what he believes in. It's, like a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ton of shit, but I could, I could write it. Now, I could not do the same thing for... Uh, Amy Klobuchar or Pete Buttigieg or Terry McAuliffe or even Joe Biden. I just couldn't. What are their issues? What are they passionate about? What do they want to see different in America five years from now than it is today? I could definitely answer that from Ron DeSantis and it's a bunch of evil shit, <laughs> but I can answer it. What is, what is, what does Amy Klobuchar want to see different in America five years from now versus today? Oh, Lord, for a million dollars, I couldn't answer that question. Ron DeSantis, he wants there to be border security. He wants there to be fewer or less woke politics interfering with how parents want to raise their kids. You know, he, he wants to, to tax woke corporations out of an, out of a, into oblivion and, and transfer more money to hardworking business owners. He wants tax cuts for the rich. He wants to make America great again. You know, and so Democrats, yeah, I think that they're pe- voters pick up on that insecurity in their messaging, and that's why. Like, I can't. And I said this to Nina Turner, I can't prove to you that going balls to the wall leftist would win. I can't prove to you that it would gain you more voters than it would turn off voters. But what I know at this point is that you tried it your way twice and it didn't work. So what's left but to try it the all other way? 
Why not just somebody, please, somewhere, just one time? Bernie never tried it. No one's ever really tried it. I just want to see. Prove me wrong. I just want to see one real Girl Scout try. Could you imagine if Bernie Sanders said, fuck this shit and went to the Green Party? Could you imagine where the Green Party would be right now if he decided to do that? Like, imagine where where the Green Party would be if David Sirota worked for 30 years trying to build up this Green Party. Imagine what your guest today could have been if he's been working for 20 years building up the Green Party. Like, what's the difference? You spent 20, 30 years getting nowhere in the Democratic Party. What's the difference in building up a third party doing that? Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I don't I don't get I don't get like the difference you're telling me oh the apparatus and this is d plus whatever d plus what nina turner had d plus whatever and what happened to her mm-hmm. like what like it just it just doesn't make it doesn't make logical sense and i think i think um brie that it's proven in when you say when you ask can you tell me how does this work and no one can ask answer the question no one is willing to come out and say, well, this is how or this is not because there isn't really a logical answer. Like your guest today, his best thing that he had to say, the best thing he had to say was, oh, we're going to come back next time and try. Like, mm-hmm. re- really, that's your strategy for people on your own team not taking this up is that we'll come back next time. We know Really? So what am I to tell uh, the people who need help uh, with rent? What am I to tell those? You, you know, it's like it's no there's no accountability for anybody who's suffering right now. It stops the power. You're so right. It stops the power out of your message. You can't really speak to those pressing concerns. She couldn't even say like like she literally could not say the Democratic Party is out to get me. Dark money is out to get me. My job is to hold Biden accountable, and the people who don't want me to hold Biden accountable are using millions of dollars and dark money to attack me and to smear me, to call me an anti-Semite, and because I support Palestinian rights. Like, she couldn't even really say that out loud, because if you're still working within the Democratic Party, you can't actually call them out for what they are and what they're doing. So she was being, she was under assault. She was being attacked left, right, and center. And was kind of complicit in a pact with the Democratic Party that prevented her from even naming the enemy. That's so tough to fight against, you know? And I think it was really draining on her personally, too. Like, that's a shitty situation to be in. And, like, it's at the end of the day a situation of one's own making. Because you have a choice. And I'm not saying it's not very scary to do what hasn't been done before. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying it's it's a choice that's easily made. But at this point... At this point, it's hard for me to understand what the gains are from doing, for, from being Sisyphus, for, for continuing to push that rock up the hill when we know it's going to come tumbling right back down. But look, I, Darlene, thank you so much for calling in. You've been great. Oh, I try to get a few more people. And, yeah, I yes, definitely please. enjoyed it. Definitely. And I just got to say one other thing is that I hope that they can hear what you guys are saying because all I can say is amen to it. So thank you. Thank you, Darlene. Keep the faith. Thanks. All right, let's go to Bruce, and then I'm going to go back to the front of the line. So sit tight, Eric. I'm coming for you. Bruce, you look like a first-time caller. I don't remember seeing this little Jenga set before. What's on your mind? 
Oh, hi. Hi, Bree. I think I called once before uh, a couple of weeks ago, but. Okay. Um, well, welcome back. Thanks. Yeah. And it's actually, uh, it's actually a pair. It's not a Jenga set. It's actually, uh, I used to work at this box company. We used to make cardboard boxes for Amazon. Those are all, those are Amazon boxes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird way they set the pallet up, but yeah, that's like a, like a six foot tall pallet of Amazon boxes. Anyway, huh, I probably should, up, I probably should update it, but anyway, but, um, yeah, it's been a great call. I've been listening to all the people and some, a caller earlier, she was saying, I think the person with the strike fund, she was talking about just so many different great topics you guys have brought up so far. And I guess one, one, uh, one thought that I had on my mind as everything that was going on is like, uh, with the railroad strike, I guess I'll go that way is, um, this sort of like divide in the, in the country politically between unions, like sort of the, you know, like the one caller was saying, like, there's like the Starbucks workers who are perceived in this connotative way of like being more liberal or being more kind of on the fringe that way versus like the railroad workers. Like they have, like, I know I saw the one guy who was on the, was it real Newsmax network? I forget which like right wing. Real network, news. Or, or oh real no. News. Newsmax. Right wing Newsmax. is Newsmax. Yeah. Yeah. Newsmax. Yeah. He had like a, a blue lives matter flag in his background on his little zoom interview. So it's like, the political gamut is like all over the, all over the map. And I guess I've heard different like sort of hybrid terms used for like Starbucks workers and like healthcare workers as like these like pink collar type workers are not exactly blue collar, not exactly the white collar, you know, it's not yeah. as you know clear cut as that. But I mean, the, the, the main thought that I'm thinking of here is like, we're all, ha we all have collars of one kind or another, right? Like we all just got to yeah. realize like, who's the fucking guy with the leash, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they all got us on a collar, but like, we got to realize like that we have the power ultimately to do what's necessary and do what is like what we need. And like, I, I was thinking too, this is also kind of random too, but like, I don't know if any, anyone has seen that last dance documentary with Michael Jordan and the Chicago bulls in the nineties. No, but people say it's amazing. Right. It's a really interesting, like you really get into the mind of who Michael Jordan is and how he was able to, you know, create that team basically from the ground up with obviously a lot of contributing players as well. But I don't know, one, one line that is kind of turned into a meme, I guess, but from that documentary, it's like, it's like Jordan is in this like one-on-one -on -one interview with the documentary people. And he's like, Oh, and I took that personal or something like that. It was like some like bad call from a ref or it was like some, I forget even what the context was in the documentary, but he was such a, like, honestly, like a lunatic about basketball where he was like, he would like, he would just take every little thing on the team. Personally, he would like, you know, kind of just whip everyone into shape in the way that like every every aspect of the team was. It it was just all about you know winning the winning the game or winning the championship. But I really feel like the left and different uh, movements that we have here really need to take that same mindset of just you know, not not changing the goalposts, like really getting on the ground and understanding like what we need as workers or what we need ugh, as uh, as people who just want to see this country do better for us, you know, like it's kind of, it's one of those things where it's like, even like a thing like black lives matter, like it was kind of corrupted from the jump. Cause they were like, I really feel like they're just a bunch of black capitalists in that movement. Like as much as they want to like put on the, the garnishes of these revolutionaries, I really feel like at the end of the day, they really don't care about like real black people in the streets or like 
people who are like going to work every day, making this country what it is like, they, they really just want to see like the propor- the proportional representation in the boardroom or in the mm-hmm. you know, top 10 CEOs, at least three of them have to be black or whatever the percentage of the country is black, right? Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really feel like they have a, a real like stake in the game in that way. So like they can lose all these millions. They can, same as the progressive Democrats, like they can just sort of lose all these millions and it's, it's all, it's like, you know, memory holds somewhere and it's like, and that's the reason why these right wingers have such a they have a, such a good cudgel against us because so many of our like leaders aren't really they don't have their eyes on the on the prize I guess mm-hmm. in a way they don't really have any real like goal with it it's just kind of like a sort of self sustaining industry on, of itself like the sort of like woke politics industry and it's just kind of I don't know it's it's really demoralizing yeah. at, at times but at the same time I think like what Dr Cornell West was saying in that one episode that you had like the truth really is the strongest weapon that we have. And it's kind of, it can shine through and, and, uh, and show us what is, what needs to be done and just keep staying, telling the truth, you know, even if it hurts, even if it's like maybe counterproductive and in a little moment here or there, like it's, it might, but it's worth it. I think in the long term for sustainable movements to like actually produce something. Yeah. I appreciate that. That Bruce, I mean, you're, you're helping me to think. Sometimes I do feel a little like, oh, I'm just putting these episodes out, like what's happening. And the way you just put all that together reminds me of how these things are building towards something. And I do, I don't know, I do I do think that there was something obviously just dispiriting about what happened with Black Lives Matter. But the flip side of it is that there were all those people who weren't corporatists or whose heart I think were, was in the right place that were in the streets. And there were people who were willing to give so much of their own earnings to a cause that they did believe in. And it's been mismanaged, but whether, you know, the, the national organization is one thing, but the kind of movement and what all that fundraising and what all those bodies in the street meant is another and that, that aspect of it still inspires me. And those people aren't at fault for whatever the national organization is accused of having done. And is there something to salvage there and to capitalize on there? I think that I think that maybe there is. Yeah, I mean, I guess it just, for me, it would really need to have a more of a substantial, like, teeth to it. Like, I guess, in the way that the Black Panthers, they, like, were literally armed in the streets protesting or like even back in the day, like the labor protests that gave us things like the weekend and Labor Day and the eight-hour workday, like those were bloody, you know, bloody battles in the street. You know, like it was kind of. I really feel like even the best-intended people who like went out for a Black Lives Matter protest, they really, you know, a lot of people got brutalized, right? And that's mm-hmm. not, nothing to gawk at either. But at the same time, I think a lot of people were kind of the professional managerial types that sort of went out with their, they made their little cardboard sign, and then they got a little photo op. And then, yeah, you know, then they went, like they went home, like, you know, like, I, yeah. it's, I guess that's kind of anecdotal, but it's still like, it's hard to parse out like who, who was really like with it and who was just more or less part of that corporate, but you honestly, know, whatever, even the, elite, TikTok, you know. the TikTok kids who are just doing it for the, for the gram or whatever, right? I, even that to the extent that it's building a certain level of consciousness, like I'd rather a world where it's cool to be a part of something like that. Yeah. in a world where people are almost unaware it's it's interesting right. i i go back and forth like this idea of distinguishing who's a pink collar worker and a blue collar worker and who's pmc 
and and I want you to weigh in on this too, CJ. Sometimes, like, I'm very interested in um, Dr. Liu's, uh, Christine Liu's kind of analysis and people like uh, Adolf Reed and Pascal Robert who do such wonderful analysis of the PNC and all of the ways that they can be ops and derail movements and have different incentives in the working class. But then at other times, and I encourage everybody to go back and listen to the Bad Faith episode with uh, Dr. Liu, I think from earlier this year or last fall, I push back against some of these characterizations because there is a certain degree of power that exists in the 99 versus the one formulation, right? And how much is it useful to call out those elements of the 99% which are potentially derailing it? You know, when are the moments when it's important to do that? And when are the moments when it's important to resist efforts to factionalize us because there is an understanding that if the 99 is really a united front, excuse me, that we are enormously powerful. And I saw this with the student debt conversation where there was this effort, this very clear effort to, to break off the 60th percentile from the 20th percentile, right? And like I've said this a million times, I completely agree that all things equal, if there were a policy that Biden could do by executive order that helped the bottom 20% instead of the student debtors who are more in the middle tier, I 100% would prioritize that. But that doesn't exist. And it's clear to me that when you look at the rhetoric around student debt, uh, the student debt conversation, that the folks that wanted to derail it clearly understood that there was an opportunity for them and breaking up the 99% and putting the, the, the top, you know, the top half against the bottom half and the 99%. And it's awkward for me to say, oh, well, you know, bottom half, don't be mad at the top half because those are, those are meaningful and very legitimate differences there and different interests there. But who is being served by those kind of divisions? I think is a question that we have to keep asking to make sure that we call out the conflict of interest when it's someone that's acting against the interest of the bottom tier of the 99% but not unnecessarily factionalizing ourselves when it's someone who's trying to derail someone who's fighting for the 99%. I'm not sure I quite understand what you mean. Um, when you say, when you're talking 99% and 1%, are, are you saying like, because like you're talking about in the context of the student loan debate, there's there's a like an effort to divide uh, students, uh, uh, student debtors who have like loan debt, um, those who are in the PMC class who have loan debt versus those who are not. Is that what's what you're saying is happening? Well, no, the, the argument was that if you have student loan debt at all, you're better off or if you have gone to college at all or completed college, which obviously 40 percent of loan debtors don't haven't actually completed their degree. But. The idea being that you are already better off than so many other working class people for even having done any part of college, that those are the elites. You saw this in like Batia's Radar, right, where she was trying to characterize people who would be beneficiaries of this program as elite relative to other people within the 99%. And, you know, you can get drawn into an argument against that. I mean, it's obviously true. Like, there's a reason people go to college is to set themselves up for better opportunities, and those better opportunities mean that on paper, at least, a lot of people who have student debt also do have higher earnings than people who don't have student debt. Like, that's absolutely true. But it's not like if we don't cancel student debt, magically Biden will say, okay, well, instead I'm going to cancel everybody's auto debt or mortgage debt or whatever, because he can't do that by executive order. I, I would love for him to. Medical debt. I would love. Right. So I don't get the. I don't. 
I don't get the point of the person who's arguing that unless you're arguing well, that, hey, point. cancel all debt. Unless your argument is. That, that is my point. Yeah. So my, my unless your argument. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, unless your argument is um, don't just cancel student debt, cancel everybody's debt, then I can understand that if you're pointing out that, hey, these people, they are up, you know, they are higher uh, earners income earners so maybe we shouldn't cancel the debt that's a that's a terrible argument to say don't cancel it because they earn more money but they're still in debt so what like that doesn't that doesn't make any uh sentence uh, logical yeah, sense I, I completely agree but like i do think that sometimes these conversations about the pmc you know they're, they're completely legitimate and I, who am i i'm a psc i'm going to tell you like don't beat up on the pmc like obviously this <laughs> let's like you know, obviously, I, I, I can't really weigh in there. I'm self-interested. But it does sometimes feel like there's a left version of the Fatia type or the, you know, general conservative type who wants to say, oh, don't support student debt because it doesn't support the poorest people in America. You know, there's a there's a left version that says, oh, the PMC's interest is the PMC. This is, this is Fatia's argument. She identifies as a leftist. She was arguing that uh, this is elites who are journalists and who are in this sector and class who are ramping up this policy and boosting this policy because they're the ones that have student loans. But really it's elitism because the real working class people, you know, the blue collars versus the pink collars don't even have student debt. And, And that's why this is not something that we should be fighting for. And so I'm very suspicious, even though I think I'm very invested in and like I'm very appreciative of the the critiques of the PMC, and I think it really does help us understand why neoliberalism is so popular and Pete Buttigieg is so popular and Elizabeth Warren is so popular among a certain class of, like, middle-class Americans. At the same time, I sometimes think there's a fine line between acknowledging the social forces that sometimes derail our movements and buying into divisions that are ultimately harmful to our ability to coalesce as a bigger community and go after the 1%. Let, let me let me give an analogy. So this person is saying, let's let's say this is a hospital. This person is saying there's a gunshot victim and then there's a stabbing victim. One is more severe. And you're offering to help the stab victim. They're saying don't help the stab victim because this other person is more urgent. So don't help nobody. That's what they're right. saying. Like, don't don't help either person, the stab victim or the gunshot wound. And that's that's the ridiculousness. And I'm putting in that context so we can hear how ridiculous that sounds. That is a that is complete. That is completely absurd. Brie. I'm for helping everybody. Nobody should be saddled with debt, whether they make a million dollars a year or whether they make ten thousand dollars a year. Like nobody should be saddled with debt. That is not how, you know, society should be set up. And and them trying to pit the PMC against everybody else. That's ridiculous. Now, my criticism of the PMC class is strictly about the left PMC or the Mm -hmm. professional managerial class and how. Mm -hmm. And this is something Catherine Liu, I think, said on your show. I know she said it on ours. They just have an an outsized voice for mm-hmm. what goes on on the left, mm-hmm. and that is that is here um, the problem. And the and the and what I like to use as an example is the idea of Marion Williamson being a good choice for a candidate. That straight up came out of the PMC. 
There's no way that came from nowhere from the working class, no activists. And therein lies the problem because you don't hear any, but you don't hear any other uh, sort of quote unquote good idea, but those that come out of the PMC class. And that is my criticism of it. Not in this context that Republicans are trying to pit workers against other workers. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Look, let me ask you this. Uh, well, actually, maybe I'll save it because I want you and Nick and Zabi to come on and do a version of the, the panel. Well, the conversation I had with Crystal about how you would feel about various candidates running. Because, I mean, the accusation, this is what Sam Adler Bell's article about was about in the New York Magazine. This accusation of the left is that we let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I'm, I am really curious about this idea of what happens. What happens if someone that has legitimate criticisms about them but is a better candidate than Joe Biden for the left runs? Do we say that? I, I love... Do we support that? I love this. Originally? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I, I love this analogy. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. That analogy is so misused because that that applies to saying something like this. You want 100% and you're only getting 70%. That doesn't apply to you want 100% and you're getting 10%. You get what I'm saying? Like that analogy or that, that uh, saying doesn't apply to the situation we have with the Democrats. Because they're not close to being perfect, and that's what the that's what that that whole saying is supposed to be saying. Don't just because you're you're not exactly perfect, don't let that be the enemy of getting something done. But that's not the no, case. I'm, like I'm completely with you, CJ. But what, what yeah. happened? Like, just play this out with me real quick. Uh-huh. Uh, let's say Biden doesn't run, just hypothetically, uh, and the Democratic Party runs uh, Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar or someone like that. And also, Elizabeth Warren runs as a left candidate, and Marianne runs, and let's say uh, Yang runs someone on a forward line. Let's just say Yang is running. What does the left do in that primary race? Who does the left get behind, if anyone at all? That is, the people you name are the exact same person. So all I heard is, Corporate Democrat A, corporate Democrat B, corporate Democrat C. I didn't hear a difference in the candidates. So in the choices we have in this instance, they're really, to me, there's no difference in the four selections. Because like, just think about it this way. What could any of them do if you have a corrupt Congress? What, well, what, I think like, if, what, well, like, what could, like, let me, let's, let's, hold on, hold on, hold, like, cause what could, what, what could they do? More, more, uh, uh, executive orders that never touches the people that we keep grandfathering in their problems. You see how well, it still doesn't fix, it still doesn't fix the issues that we keep grandfathering in. Executive see, orders don't do that. Pressuring, campaigning when you have a a bought Congress, like it doesn't do all of that. CJ, you just mentioned how important student debt is, and I agree with you. This is not; it doesn't go to any of the broader complaints that you can leverage leverage against any of these people. 
But I would imagine that if Elizabeth Warren were the candidate, then and if she were president right now, she'd be talking about canceling fifty thousand dollars of student debt instead of ten thousand, which is something that she could do. Which is not the be all and all of the world, and maybe is not a reason why someone should give their last twenty seven dollars to a campaign, but is a reason why someone maybe would take the time and go to the voting booth and vote for her in a primary election instead of Amy Klobuchar. But I wanna get I wanna get um Sorry, I but the problem with that, Bree, is that we would be going back to the understanding that now we're believing these people again. Well, no, no, no. So the, that no. that would have to be the framing. You get what I'm saying? No, no, that would have to be the framing no, that Jay. we're believing anything they're saying. No, this this is and during this, the primary. Well, I mean, yes, on some level, I you know, if you if you're if you're so cynical that you don't think that. Elizabeth Warren even believes in the fifty thousand, or that Marianne I'm not, really believes in a hundred and in a hundred percent, or or whatever. I'm and not saying I mean, believe like another... or support. I'm not saying believe or support. They can. This is and this is what I say about the word support. No, but this is support... executive orders, though. This, this this isn't one of those things where it's like I can say I believe in a fifteen dollars minimum wage, but I know it's not going to happen. I'm talking squarely in the realm of student debt cancellation. So even Biden. On some level, we'll see if it goes through or not, but on some level has said he's going to support and is going to cancel $10,000 of debt. So it's hard for me to say if Biden is willing to do follow through on his promise that Elizabeth Warren won't do follow through on her. But look where we're at. Look where we're at. We're here. We're here in the corner, freezing cold, arguing about which crumb is better. Right, but, I don't. But, I, this is not a place that I'm gonna be. You, you, but listen to what okay, you're describing. CJ, that's fine. CJ, but that's listen, fine. that's but, that's I, a, CJ, such a ridiculous I, 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 place I to be. I respect that. I completely respect that, CJ. But I'm gonna move on to Bruce now. Bruce, can you answer this question? Okay. Because Bruce, you're a voter. What would you do in that situation? Because this is this is my issue. There are people who whose position is I'm not going to participate in a general election or a primary election. I completely respect that. But with all honesty, with all due respect, CJ. Most people, even if they're over electoralism, are not exactly there. Like, I voted. I voted. I voted for Bernie in a primary, and I voted for a Green Party in the general election. So most people are going to vote, and so they want to know how to maximize their vote, even if they have all the legitimate frustrations you say. So the question I put to you, Bruce, if you have these options, is it, and given the differences, however minor they might be between these options, would you prefer a world? where you have a Elizabeth Warren, who we all know how I feel about her, or in a Marianne Williamson or anybody else in a, as an alternative to a Pete Buttigieg or a Klo, maybe Klobuchar or a Joe Biden. Does that make a difference to you? And you can feel free to agree with CJ and say the answer is no, but I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I always remember that episode you had with Chomsky. I remember last like 2020 election he had, and even him and uh, who was the other one, um, Andrew, they had they co-opted like Angela Davis as well and those like sort of vote for Biden mm-hmm. ads and I I I wound up kind of falling for those and voting for him anyway personally I'm li- I live in Minnesota personally so like it's a pretty blue state so mm-hmm. I I would feel pretty confident voting for a third party but yeah even after everything that's happened with Biden and the squad and like even Ilhan Omar sadly it's like it seems like they've all kind of been co-opted by that neoliberal corporate Democrat. Um, model to a certain extent like after January 6th they kind of all like were they all like saw that as like a legitimate threat from the quote unquote like militant right wing 
fascist or whatever, which it was in, in many ways, but I really feel like in, in other ways too, it was kind of just LARPing, people LARPing in the Capitol, but neither here nor there. But yeah, in, in terms of your question, yeah, I'd probably still go for a third party, especially after what Biden's done and what, you know, all the sort of milk toast things that he hasn't really even like followed through on his own campaign promises, right? I mean, would you vote this, in a primary though, in a Democratic primary? Assuming you, you could and still, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Even the Democratic primary, like I didn't honestly vote for Ilhan Omar in the Democratic primary this time just because I just like I just like presidential primary. I didn't even like care about it. But presidential Would primary, you, I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I might do it if I had the time, but like it's it's not top of my list for real. I mean, it's just it's one of those things where I really feel mm-hmm. like the Shama Sawant model is like really the only like model that. Well, that's the thing, Shawan Sawant and Chris Hedges, I asked them this. Like, this is what was so infuriating to me. <laughs> I asked them. Like, I wasn't trying to lead anybody anywhere. I just fully asked them, should people sit out? Are you fully saying that people should sit out general elections, like primary elections? Like, it doesn't matter. You're completely over it. Electoralism is dead. Just ignore it. And they both said emphatically no. So I said, Okay. And then I tried to engage in this exact conversation. Okay, then how do you strategically vote if you're telling people to go ahead and vote some kind of way, participate some kind of way in the electoral process? Well, and then they, they refuse to weigh in on that. So I'm yeah. like, okay, you can't have it both ways. Either admit that you want people to ignore it, which is fine. I, I completely respect CJ's point of view here, like completely. But if you're not saying to completely ignore it, which Chris Hedges and Sean Massawant both said don't do, you have to then be willing to engage in a conversation about how to maximize the opportunities that that electoral cycle pre- presents, even if the candidates are less than ideal. Yeah. I mean, I personally, I, I mean, I might be able to vote in the Democratic primary, but when I say that the Shama Sawant model, I mean, mm. like the, the way that she takes her salary and she literally looks at her constituency and she takes the average salary of her constituency and then all the rest of it is donated to mutual aid and different organizing efforts in her community. Like if every single progressive Democrat did that with their salary or if every single green party member, whatever the, in in theory, whatever, whoever I'm voting for, if they did that model, like that's, that's the kind of politician I would want to support. Like, cause in the end of the day, if they're not doing any of that, they're really just kind of becoming part of that PMC, part of that, like swamp, whatever you want to say. They're kind of like becoming co-opted just like by being there longer and longer, not having that militancy of being that one-term congressperson or whatever they campaigned as. They're really not feeling the burden that we're all feeling that when we say like we still like protest, even if it's perfect enemy of the good or whatever it is, like it's like they lose their perspective and so so easily once they're in there. So it's like, yeah, I really whoever I'm voting for, I mean, I, I really don't see the the benefit of voting for Democrats at this point just I mean, your episode today proved it in and of itself. The well, Zogsky guy, this, he was saying, what he was saying Shama, like the, the party, the party doesn't even exist, right? That was his, his What if his What if Shama ran as a Democrat with the intention of doing a dirty break? See, now that would be interesting because, yeah, that would be hard to like message that without immediately being taken in bad faith, I guess. But um, in, in the terms of like, like, she would probably not even really be supported by the democratic people, but she would have to like pretend like just hold her cards close to her chest. And then at the last possible moment, like play them. I mean, I would, I would support that for sure. But So what you're saying is um, that it really isn't. And again, I'm not trying to play gotcha here, but I'm, what I'm trying to convey is that it seems to me that there is a version of a candidate 
that people trust enough because of their record in the same way that people trusted Bernie despite him running on the Democratic Party ticket to be adversarial in a way that would cause you to want to support them in the context of a Democratic Party, even though there's so much, you know, so little confidence in the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be tough. I mean, like I said, it's, it'd be really tough, you know, messaging act to be like, all right, I'm all right, everyone, I'm pantomiming as a Democratic for now. But when before they before they know it, I'm going to pull the rug out and we're all going to tank the election to go this way. Like it's kind of it was kind of it's sort of a foregone conclusion. It makes I mean. I really feel like if Bernie should have done that if he was going to do that, but he sort of caved. But it because now it's sort of the precedent is set to be like to just sort of bend the knee and to be like, all right, wh- whoever it is, like Bernie, who was Dennis Kucinich, like these mm. previous like sort of progressive, you know, populist type Democrats that just sort of like bend the knee and like kind of go on podcasts or go here or there afterwards to sort of tell how they were screwed. But it's like it's always a bunch of cope. At the end of the day, I really want like. <laughs> Whoever, whoever it to, whoever it is, to just sort of have the balls to be like, all right, I'm gonna be third party, or I'm gonna be this, or I'm gonna, you know, lay the whole plan out like, outright, whether they are Democrat or whatever it is, to be like, all right, when I get into office, like, my salary is gonna be, you know, this much, and I'm gonna give all of it away, and like, I'm not gonna support any corporate nonsense, I'm not gonna, you know, this, that, and the other thing, I'm gonna be willing to shoot the hostage and in all these different ways. Like that's the big thing too, is like being willing to shoot the hostage and like kind of have that sort of revolutionary suicide mindset about it. Like, it's not like, it's not about your career. It's not about your, your one individual, like there's the impact of you doing whatever you're going to do in the highest office of the land. It like spans generations. Like you got to really have a bigger mindset than just like someone like AOC will do like a GQ interview and just kind of pretend like she's this like public celebrity figure now as if that's helping anyone other than the people who listen to GQ. Like it's, it's kind of just a, just all bread and circus, I guess, at this point. Like I really want, I really want there to be more substance to it. But anyway, I feel like I've been on a long time, but yeah, thanks for the, thanks for the call. Thank you, Bruce. I'll let you go. All right. Um, Not cousin Eric. You've been very patient. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you guys doing? We're doing all right. How are you doing, CJ? Oh, I'm I'm doing very well. Loving loving the conversation. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you again for for devoting your time. And also, don't feel compelled. Like whenever I know it's late. Whenever you got to go, you got to go. I know it's a school night and everything. But but not cousin Eric. What's on your mind this evening? So um, what's on my mind? I actually kind of like the little game you you guys, the little hypotheticals you guys were playing. Yeah. And I was thinking about it, and like me personally. I would I can definitely see myself voting for some uh, Marianne Williams in a Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. Um, my caveat would be that if I had her ear, if you don't get that, you don't endorse anybody. If they don't agree to certain terms, you don't endorse anyone. Because my only because my big issue with Marianne Williams will not come from her policies or not necessarily the way that she debates. I think she has such a, she has a, I think they could manipulate her moral compass and use that against her and be like, whatever evil person the Republican Party puts up to keep her from either, you know, going third party, endorsing a third party candidate. And that would be like the concern. And I would want something to kind of like smooth that over. 
But your concern is that some kind of Trump-like figure would emerge and that she would ultimately feel compelled to endorse the Democratic candidate. Yeah, I don't think she can. I don't think she has it in her to shoot the hostage. That would be my concern. I can see myself voting for Marianne Williams if that's the option, but I don't see her. Um, you don't see her doing the dirty break. Don't doing the dirty break. Didn't and she allude to being open to that when she was on uh, Bad Faith last? It kind of seems like, because she kind of hinted at, like, the whole, she didn't completely throw away the third party mm-hmm. idea. I remember when you asked her kind of, like, maybe what, she didn't, like, completely throw throw it away. I have heard her speak. I've heard her speak about how she, like, the way she talks about Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of makes me question just how far she's willing to go with something like that. Um... So that would be like my concern because the one reason, the only reason I brought this up is because for me, after listening to your conversation with the the gentleman that you had on, mm-hmm. it uh, only Jim made Zogby. It, you guys yeah. are so funny with this name, like Joe Zogby? Jim, Jim Zogby. Let me just explain, like in the context of like the Bernie campaign and like the left people in that circle is like he's like royalty. Like, he's been around, obviously, for a really long time, and everybody speaks with him with such, and I think rightfully so, with such, like, honor in the context of the Bernie campaign that it's kind of cracking me up that none of you guys can remember his name. Yeah, Jim Zoppy. Yes, Z-O-G-B-Y. Okay, and what, it kind of made me, what, 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 it, his, your conversation with him only made me more determined and still forced in my I, my thinkings of the Democratic Party and progressives within the Democratic Party and that it is almost, I don't think we're going, I think we've come as far as we can with that strategy and I don't think it can go any further. And the reason I said that is because he said something to me that like really threw me off. It was, he said, he's been doing this for 40 years. And when he got, when he did the whole thing with the getting dark money at the very least, out of Democratic primaries and they didn't even bring it to a vote. And then he said, Not well, even a Mex- debate. Forget a vote. Yeah, that they wouldn't a debate. debate. And then he said that, oh, next time we know what they're going to do. So what I didn't even, the next time wasn't the thing that got me. What got me is how did you get trapped in the first place? You know what these people are. This should have never been a next time. This should have been the next time. This should have been the time where I know what they're going to try to do. Mm-hmm. These are the tactics. that, Like, you've been in there for 40 years. You don't know the rules. You don't know the tactics. Mm-hmm. To me, you, once they said, wait, when I heard this, oh, they're going to have, they're going to try to get a vote to get the Democratic Party, get dark money out of primary. I, when I even heard, right, I, I forgot where I had it on Twitter somewhere. I'm mm-hmm. like, that's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. I knew it from the get. And to me, the fact that he didn't know that from the get just tells me there's a, like, I truly believe he means well and he wants well. Mm-hmm. But he, it, it's like a Stockholm syndrome. He's delusional. Like, that's not, like, and it gets me, like, he still thinks people like, and this is one, like, some people get on me because this is one of the reasons why I don't like when I see Rashida Tlaib takes pictures with, you know, President Biden. When mm-hmm. you have AOC's arm around Nancy Pelosi. When I see Ilan Omer, you know, accepting the endorsement of Nancy Pelosi because now mm-hmm. I don't know what did that because she won only won by 3%. Mm-hmm. What did that cost her? Mm-hmm. I was already skeptical of you. Now I'm like, ooh, 
what did that cost her? Because I know Nancy Pelosi would have preferred the other guy than you. Mm-hmm. So it's like, mm-hmm. these people don't like you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't get it. Like, I don't like hanging out in, with people that don't like me. Mm-hmm. If you don't like me, don't like, don't, then, then we don't like each other. Let's move about. You don't have to be near me. You don't got to hug up on me. You don't got to endorse me. I don't want nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. And that's, and when I heard him say that, that's like, oh, he's, he's going to be doing this for another. He's going to be doing this until he's dead in his grave. And it's sad. And it's, and it, it hurts me because I, I, I hear it in his voice. And I'm like, it's a losing battle. Like, what are you doing? And I think he could be so much more useful if he did a clean break and worked with the Green Party or worked with whatever third party he wants to to do with. And then bring people, and then bring all those 40 years of experience to something else. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that, and then uh, the other thing that I wanted to, what was the other thing I was going to say? Uh, dude. Oh, I I kind of lost my thought on that when and when I was going on with that. But well, that, that was good. I think that last point about how again, no one really tabulates the loss of resources mm-hmm. that are someone as smart and dedicated and capable as Dr. Zogby not using that energy elsewhere. Like when people talk about, oh, the third party is not going to win anyway, so it'll be a waste. Like, what do we make of all of? I'm not saying that his, you know, all of his work has been a waste because, like I said, told him on the show. Without you having fought for this long, we wouldn't be able to say so conclusively that the inside game doesn't work, right? Like someone had to try, and that yeah. is meaningful. Just like science and experimentation is all about a million failures and only one success. So, like, I'm so grateful that he did that work. But at a certain point, how much are we going to, you know, start to regret all of the wasted energy that could have been used for other kinds of efforts? Okay, I actually kind of, that's actually a good, that's kind of what I wanted to sum up. But the other thing I was going to say is, um, when you guys started talking with, you started talking about the whole thing that happened with Nat, uh, not Nancy, sorry, but with um, Nina, and how, in the second time she ran, and how none of the progressives in the squad really came out to support her. Uh-huh. And he was, you can hear that he was upset with that. You can uh-huh. hear that he was like, oh, that should never happen. They should uh-huh. be you know, and, you know, to be a little direct, they need to be spanked for that, but no one's there mm-hmm. to spank them. Mm-hmm. And what I have learned now is for me, one of the first things that kind of made me raise my eyebrows just a little bit when, you know, all these guys started to get elected in 2008 with like AOCs and all that type of stuff mm-hmm. is when all of a sudden they stopped going on Jimmy Dore show. They mm-hmm. stopped going on Kyle Kalinske's show. Mm-hmm. They weren't on TYT as much. They weren't on majority report as much. And for me, I'm a fiercely loyal person. And I'm someone who's like, when they no one knew who none of these people were, mm-hmm. and they needed, you know, donor money, mm-hmm. they would go on these shows and, you know, get the people in the audience to donate to their campaigns. And now that they're elected, I don't see them on the shows that often. Mm-hmm. The only time I see them on the show, they do come on those certain shows, is when it's an election time and they need donations. Mm-hmm. So that, right off the bat, when I started seeing that, I'm like, oh, you, you, you acting kind of funny to me. That your, your, your loyalty is very shaky. Mm-hmm. You're not, you not with people who was there when no one knew you. Mm-hmm. So to me, what, what they did to Nina is the biggest thing. Because how can you have an inside game if you're not willing to get people inside that's mm-hmm. going to fight for you? 
hundred percent. Everyone, when when Nancy, when when the Progressive Caucus did what they did to Nina, mm-hmm. all six, I expected all six of them to come out, have something said. We are not doing this. We are we are endorsing Nina. We are going to be flying out to Ohio right now. And that, and just that, and the fact that Nina is not, I'm like, first of all, I don't know what her private conversation is. I was upset for her. Mm-hmm. I'd have been calling all of them out. Mm-hmm. And then, or, and then or India, have, by the way, too. India, India too. I was, I was like, girl, that, that, no one got shafted. Like, you got shafted. Yeah, I would have called every, and then AOC with her last, I would have, I would have told her, listen, keep it to yourself. I don't want it. I, Cause that it just shows me a certain character, and a certain um, uh, a lack of moral fortitude. Now, I, like you're not strong enough. We don't have like I used to think we had warriors. We don't got warriors. We yeah. what we have is we what I think we have is they. I th- I do believe they want Medicare for all, but they want Medicare for all. Well, just nice. Well, just fall on your lap. You know, they want yeah. Medicare for all way. We could just put it up for a vote. It passes and it goes through smoothly. Yeah, I feel like at the end of the day, if we're if if we as outsiders feel more upset about the thing that was done to them and at our expense, then at some point something shifts and it almost feels like they are covering for the people they hurt that that hurt them. By not speaking out about it, instead of standing with us in that pain and fighting for what we all collectively believe in, you know, Mm -hmm. at a certain point, you got to pick a side and your silence, your unwillingness to say, I was disappointed that my friend Cory Bush didn't speak out against the Congressional Progressive Caucus or my co, um, what do you call it? My co-co-chair, Ro Khanna didn't say anything about how the caucus turned on me, despite us working so closely together on the Bernie campaign. Like if you're not willing to say those true things about how the people who were supposed to be with you threw you under the bus, then you're basically saying you're covering for them. You're siding with them. And if I'm someone who was giving you money and supporting you, it's like, why should I stand up for you? If you won't stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. That, that's just the exact thing. In that, and it just makes you question all of them. And it's like, Oh, because I'm at the point where, listen, I'm someone who, I live in New York, and so we have closed primaries, so I am a, I am mm-hmm. a Democrat, so I just go, you know, uh, to the, if there's a primary coming on, I look to the candidate. Typically, I vote third party. Um, if there's no third party candidate I really like, I'll vote for the most progressive Democrat, see what happens. But mm-hmm. I like to vote just because we, we have ballot measures usually. In New York, so I'm always trying to get those ballot measures and making sure I, I look them up and see which the best ballot measure for my um, New York state primaries are trash. And yes, it's the most regressive voting laws in the state. That's yes. the only reason I'm a registered Dem. Uh-huh. I haven't, vo- I haven't, I guess I haven't, I guess I have voted in DC. So, yeah. and, yeah. and also mm-hmm. one of the things that, uh, just to bring that up, we had a chance to get mail by ballots and just for just the standard in New York City. Mm-hmm. New York State, and the fact that none of our progressive uh, Congress people would just go out and, and just say that—they mm-hmm. didn't—they didn't campaign on it. They did that wasn't a part of this. It was like, mm-hmm. what? I'm like, so what are you doing? You have like, so when um, I would be more for an inside game if there was an inside game. So that's the one thing I disagree with uh, Crystal Ball. There is no inside game. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I, I'm curious what CJ thinks about that, but I do think that. 
there are is a decent quantity of people who is similarly jaded by electoralism, mm-hmm. but conditionally so. So we either support a Shama type who did a dirty break or even a Marianne who did a dirty break or someone who was willing to li- like who had, de- had demonstrated willingness to be adversarial despite running as a Democrat, which is what we thought Bernie was going to be despite being disappointed on some score. Like, so that, you know, there, there's op- there are opportunities and people who would be invested in various people who are running on the democratic people to varying degrees. And yeah. to the extent that I think that is going to be what happens either if not 2024, then 2028, then I do think that we should be prepared for it as a community about what we're going to do and how we're going to best exploit that moment, even though I fully, uh, fully respect where CJ is coming from. And the last thing before I'm going to head out at this, I just had to make this quick point because you brought up Chomsky. I was, I was extremely upset with a lot of people who I was listening to because I remember how a lot of people on the left, those same lefties you were talking about who are gatekeepers, when you had your conversation with Chomsky, how, oh, Brianna Joy Gray, she an idiot. She don't understand what Chomsky's mm-hmm. talking about. Chomsky's this great in intellect, great, mm-hmm. you know, blah, 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 blah. And then when Chomsky went on Russell Brand's show and started talking about Russia and Ukraine and started saying some shit about Russia and how Russia, you know, maybe Russia might not be the big baddie and we might be the big baddie. A whole mm-hmm. lot more nuance going into all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, Chomsky, he's like 90-some-odd years old. He's a little mm-hmm. senile. He don't know what he's talking about. And all of this, all of a sudden, oh, I thought Chomsky was our social lord and savior. <laughs> I think at one point during that whole debacle, I was compelled to tweet, Chomsky is not my father. <laughs> I do not have, I don't have to have to debate or agree with whatever Chomsky says. <laughs> like, I know that he might be y'all, white, like the white left daddy or whatever, but like, all due respect, I have so much respect for the man and so much respect for his writings and so much respect for his um, advocacy over the years but like truly we are allowed to disagree with people guys it was, <laughs> like it's it was, okay <laughs> it was really upset how i like, like oh so y'all just y'all just y'all just fake yeah y'all just like oh y'all gonna agree with if someone just deviates a little bit from what you think is supposed to be right because I, I i really don't like i know this is not the topic but that whole ukraine and russia thing to me is like like you can, I I I don't know. It's so easy for me to see that. Okay, Russia is wrong, but I can also see the fact that you know Russia. I can see why Russia did it. I can see that we were meddling up in this, you know, all of this nonsense, and we caused this event to happen. Doesn't mean I want Russia to invade countries, but we have yeah. to also understand Americans, you know, involvement in it. Yeah, but yeah. if you want to unwind it, you have to understand what. Russia's motives were, even if you don't think that their actions were justified based on those motives. But you guys have a good one. Great conversation. Thank you, Eric. Keep the faith. Thank you so much. Bree, I want to chime in and kind of speak further about my point of view. And that is, it's, it's very hard for me to talk about the subject of, of Democrats in, in a way of saying I should, should like like we're suggesting them because it, it's like I'm suggesting a Ponzi scheme. I feel like I'm I'm suggesting something that I know is a terrible idea because I've lived it and we're all living it. So I believe that when people if people are reaching out what they should do, we should be educating them in how the, our system is not set up to actually get anything done in four years. 
we need to be setting the right expectation so that people aren't in this cycle of two to four years expecting things to happen that politicians promised on the campaign uh, in the campaign field that's never going to happen. Like we we have to we can't keep saying meet people where there are and then we do and then we stay where they are. We are meeting them there for the conversation starter to to take them and lead them to a better place. So RBN is in the space to talk about electoralism, even though we're not participating. So we talk about these subjects so that people who are in these subjects come to listen to us and then we tell them, fuck this shit. Like, we don't proceed to give them this notion that somebody that choosing Elizabeth Warren over Amy Klobuchar is going to do anything for their lives. DJ, I think it's because it's really not. It is simply not. I think it is perfect. simply not. So we have to stop selling that ourselves. But CJ, we have to stop doing that. CJ, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say, I don't think you should vote in or pay attention to a Democratic Party primary. That's a perfectly legitimate spot. If that's your answer, then I say, great, and we'll move on. Like, I'm, I'm over it. Just say no. That's great. That's fine. I, I, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm not asking anybody to. I, I don't care. If the answer is no, great. No, no further discussion needed for me. But for a lot of people, CJ, the answer is, well, yes, if someone's on the ballot, even if that's not my focus, even if that's not my goal, I want, I'm going to go ahead and, and pick the one over the other. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weigh in in the primary. So if that's not you, I completely understand why you don't care and you won't be voting. And I, I like, I'm not just saying that rhetorically. I fully, fully respect that decision, especially per the last caller. Like what Eric just said about New York and like to, to New York, Eric has to give up voting in any kind of Green Party primary election even to have that choice in New York, then that's a really shitty thing and a sacrifice that maybe he doesn't want to make one day just to choose between, you know, Elizabeth Warren and people who to judge. And I respect that too, if that's what he ultimately decides to do. But all I'm saying, CJ, is that for the people who would weigh in on a primary election because doing so is free, I'm curious to know if it makes a difference for them who's running. That's all I'm asking. I get it. We're we're in two different spaces because I'm in the space of getting people out of that. And maybe, you know, you're in the space of listening to people and just kind of reflecting that out and, and trying to get solutions. I'm in the space to get people out of this. Mm. So we're we're coming from two different perspectives, um, because if anybody comes to me, I'm going to say no, there's no salvation in four years. There's no salvation. There's none. Nothing's going to happen. You're going to vote and your life is not going to change whatsoever. That's what I'm going to tell them. That's what I tell people who ask me what to do. What to do is to realize voting does nothing. I hear that. And I hear it does absolutely even... nothing because I'm trying to galvanize a revolution. I hear you that. can't galvanize a revolution by saying you can go get things done through the institution. So I get we're coming from two different spaces. Yeah, I, I and, I, and I hear you saying that, like, even having the conversation is validating the system in some ways. And I completely respect exactly. that. Well. But exactly. Exactly. I want to get a couple more people in here before we wrap up in just a few minutes. So, Ray, it looks like I haven't seen your face in here before. So let me know what's on your mind right now. Brianna Joy Gray, can you hear me? 
loud and clear, Wraith. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind tonight? Yeah, uh, long long time listener, first time caller. Um, so. Yeah, I've I've been on the uh, on the listener side for a good fifty plus episodes, and um, I agree. Can you hear me? Yeah, of course. Okay, like I agree with the whole dim exit thing. Mm-hmm. But it's like, where, what, like, what would we do? Where would we go? And like, I, I mean, I support the whole independent thing, third party and whatnot. But I feel like it needs a figurehead. Like, it would need somebody to like really uh pull it off. Mm-hmm. And I think it should be Bernie Sanders. But like, even if he wanted a third round, like I tell people all the time, like, in order for Bernie Sanders to run, and like, for his base, well. More, more or less, we'll probably still support him, but like I don't think it'll be like hardcore the way it was, like with 2016 and even some of the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. But like he would have to, uh, like he would have to call out the Democratic Party and like he would have to name names. Mm-hmm. And like I think he should do it and stay in and stay in the race the entire time. Like don't don't pull out for anything whatsoever. Like, just stay. Like, so wet that it splits that, you know, they say that it'll split the uh, vote. It'll pull votes from the Democratic Party. What's the, that's the whole point. We're tired of voting for the Democratic Party and not getting anything for it. Like, I think that that needs to be done. What do you, what do you think about that, CJ? Because I know a lot of folks are very frustrated with Bernie right now. But do you think that given that he still carries a certain kind of unparalleled weight, on the national stage and among the left that if he ran again with the kind of explicit intention to do a dirty break and lead a third party movement, that it's something that you could get behind. That will be, this is a, the first time I'm hearing this idea and this is a fantastic idea. Mm. If he explicitly said that because, because this is the thing that's unique about Bernie even for those that have heavy critiques, critiques for him now, mm-hmm. there's always a soft spot, even for those people. So if Bernie somehow came out and said, I'm running again and I'm running whatever, you know, whatever third party and I'm running because the Democratic Party, I've seen how corrupt it is. How they cheated me two cycles in a row. Look what Hillary did. Like he's saying these things. Mm-hmm. That is that is meeting the moment. That feels like something that meets the moment, and it and it's fulfilling two things to attack to attack the establishment. One, like Kashama Kashama says, he's running outside of the two major corporate parties, so that's a key thing. And then, what's going to galvanize working people all across the world, all across the world, really, but all across the United States, is the way that he's talking about them, speaking in regular like street working class language um using colorful names like sort of like a trump used colorful names not to be mean but like using colorful names to describe their corruption mm-hmm. that's the type of campaign that may work and it's sort of adjacent to uh kashama sawant's militant campaign it's sort of adjacent to that yeah i mean i saw when i said this or um when uh, Wraith brought, brought it up. I saw a bunch of down votes um, in the chat. So I know that some people are just, you know, kind of over Bernie, but I do think the world where a lot of these people 
said explicitly that they were going to do a dirty break would cause us to invest in them, even if we're kind of over them. But I, I also do think as well that very few people are likely to say from the jump that they're going to do a dirty break. But so it, it's this, it's this kind of like, how much do we believe? How much can we read between the lines? How much do we just have faith in our hearts that Bernie or uh, Marianne or Shama, if she could, you know, was actually going to do that without saying it out loud. Oh no. Oh no. This, this will require a public, a public notification. (laughs) The only way this works is if it's publicly said, Mm -hmm. there's no hiding. That's the only way this strategy works. Believe me. Trump did it. It's almost like a version of Trump, but going further. It's just a left version of it. You're calling them out directly. You're mm-hmm. call, using these funny names. People want to hear their frustration through the person they're going to support in the language and the words they're choosing. So that is very key. So, no, this requires a public shouting up what you're saying or what you, the strategy is. Let's get some other people in here on this. Oh, go ahead, Ray. And like, I second that. Like, a lot of people say that they tired of Bernie. Like, I may never say President Sanders, and that's fine with that. But like, we still need Bernie around. Like, he has like, he's like the biggest person right now as far as progressives are concerned. And like, somebody has to be around to like say the things and announce the progressive uh, frustrations. And it's like. He also needs to start, I hate this word, but like he, like, because like the Democrats don't groom people to like take his place. It's like Bernie's not going to live forever. So he's going to have to start like grooming people to like come in and take his place. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I, I, I would personally love that. I would take back everything I have ever said that was even remotely critical and be so embarrassingly girlishly all in. If he was like I'm doing the third party, like I got to just, I would admit that y'all can drive me for filth, but I'd be, I'd be out here digging all my Bernie shirts out the bottom drawer. <laughs> like ready to yeah, get it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean. Like, let's just think about, just think about how you just described it. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. Why it can't be, it can't be, quiet it can't be undercover because the reaction you're feeling and just the idea is what you're trying to channel by this if if you know if he did this yeah yeah look i i i appreciate that we thank you for walking us down this thought experiment we're we're like getting to the end of the hour not just because uh we've been on for a while but because my phone is playing games and like not charging with this charger and i'm afraid i'm going to get cut off any second and i want to just get a couple of more in because this line is so long and I appreciate how many of you have been waiting around all this time. So thank you, Ray. Thank you for being a first-time caller. I hope you call back. Keep the faith. I will. Thank you. Keep the faith. And let's get Captain up here because I've never seen this avatar before, too, and I'm really curious about this cartoon elephant. And I'm going to come back to you at the front, John. Captain, can you unmute yourself for us? Captain Elephant going once, going twice. You guys got to look alive. You'll be thinking, oh, she's going to the back Hello? of the front of the line. Yes, there you go. <laughs> How are you doing, Captain? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. What's on your mind tonight, real quick? Uh, it's uh, I've been uh, listening to your show since the beginning, and uh, it was a real blast from the past to have uh, Dr. Zogby on. 
because uh, back in the in the 2008 election cycle, I was a pollster. Mm. So, um, yeah, I was I was really listening to this man, like, and I was like, oh wow, a whole generation has happened since I used to pay attention to his work. What's he been up to? And it seems like not a whole lot that's that useful. <laughs> so, oh, it's uh, so hard, you guys. But I feel really terrible because. I- I do really feel like, but for the, you know, we walk, you know, Zogby walked so we could run and we're going to run so some Gen Zer can fly or whatever, you know, like I do, I really do think that's the case. And I, I didn't mean, I didn't ask him on to kind of like beat up on him or anything like that. It just keeps happening for some reason. No, I I feel that, like. (laughs) He was, he was like, you know, of all the, of all the polling figures I had to look up to in my academic days, he was the one who seemed to actually give a shit about anything. So I'm, I very much feel the exact same way. And he's such Um, an advocate for Palestinian rights. So people should really go and like get the full context of his work and advocacy because, you know, that that stuff matters too. But please, please go ahead, Captain. Anyway, what I was going to say is like, I feel like one lesson that we haven't learned from the Trump era is... I think we need to be a lot, especially if we're planning on doing something like a third party break, we need to be a lot crankier and a lot louder, especially in places where it's not our business to be. Mm. Um, I remember your coverage of uh, CRT back in the, uh, what was it, a year ago now, when people mm-hmm. were showing up at board meetings and zoning planning and talking about CRT, like is there any room for like some really low hanging fruit? Like how about we show up at school board meetings and start talking about banning robocalls? And, oh, I love this so much. <laughs> I am so like, into low hanging fruit. Or banning ATM fees or something oh, like that. Yes. Oh, consumer protection shit. Look, I, I said, I literally said this to someone on the campaign at some point. Like if Bernie ran this entire thing about hating Comcast, he'd probably win. <laughs> just hating Comcast and maybe the opioid epidemic. You could just yeah. win on that. <laughs> I, I totally agree. And I have a story that brought this to mind because uh, a couple of weeks ago I was at a bar and I ran into a guy and he said, Hey man, you got me fired. And I was like, wait, how did this happen? And it turns out he was my Uber Eats driver. Um, and he delivered food and I had COVID, so I couldn't answer the door. Right. Mm-hmm. So I said, leave the food there. Mm-hmm. And then he left someone else's food. Right. Mm-hmm. So I tried to call him mm-hmm. and I said, I was like, I left him a mess. And I'm like, dude, I don't want you to get fired. Just come back and swap the food out. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to complain about this. Like, mm-hmm. cause I know how terrible Uber is. I used to drive for Uber and he didn't answer the phone. And when we talked that night, he was like, he didn't answer the phone. Cause every, he gets a dozen robocalls a day. Mm. and he didn't recognize my number mm-hmm. and so like ah it's just like there's and you, you you talk a lot about people who kind of checked out of the process and even like super online people who, who like us who are super angry but i kind of brought this up to a couple of people who are like i'm never voting for Tim again like what if they got rid of robocalls mm-hmm. and every single one of them had this moment where like yeah they might do it and so <laughs> <laughs> when when you were having the conversation with Dr. Zogby and you kept saying like the incrementalism, like what is the increment? That is such a small increment, and the bar the bar is so low that you could win us back, but you don't even deliver on that. Like, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think that's such a good point. I really do love that. 
<sighs> I really do love that. Anyway, that's, I thought, like, uh, I think one of the understated things about Trump's success is he managed to get all the cranks who wear tinfoil hats and uh, are just general pain in the ass everywhere to be part of his voting block. Like, why can't we be a pain in the ass? And, uh, you know, why aren't we at uh, uh, zoning meetings complaining about uh, intersections and stuff? Like, why are we not, like, let's ban ATM fees. That's got to be, who on earth is is for this? You know, even if it's, even if this committee doesn't have any responsibility or anything they can do about it, let's just all be really annoying about one specific issue. And I'm here for maybe- it. And the other thing is, Captain, like, AOC and Bernie had a bill in like 2019 that was a consumer protection bill about, I think, uh, capping credit card interest rates. Like, even when they do some stuff that's kind of like this, they don't really uh-huh. advertise it. They barely talk about it. Like, there was that weird media blip about, um, what's her name? Pelosi doing the insider trading. And it came out mostly because Republicans are mad about it. But, like, that should have been an issue that progressives have been pushing. Getting getting the ban on on um, people insider training, and people don't realize I think that so much of the energy and power on the right comes from the fact that right wingers will disagree with each other. Like conservatives contradict each other and are mad at each other all the time. It doesn't break the party apart. It makes it seem kind of more authentic. There's different factions. There's like a Bobardi faction. There's a libertarian faction. There's the right populist faction. And they bump up against each other and disagree. They're all mad at Lindsey Graham right now, you know, for doing the abortion ban because they think it's ruining their electoral chances. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, it, and it, it injects some energy into that side of the aisle that doesn't exist on the left where AOC has to literally act like Nancy Pelosi is mama bear or else she'll put her in the gulag or something. I don't know what kind of threat they got these young people under, but <laughs> it must be something. Nancy Pelosi must, you know, like peel her face off when she goes into a back room and turn into one of those creatures from aliens or something. Cause she's got them progressive shook. <laughs> they are I, not I, speaking yeah. out. Yeah, go ahead. I don't, I, I don't understand what it is. And I live in Oakland, like not that far from San Francisco. And mm-hmm. I'm like, why do you follow the school? Like I get that she used to be awesome, but, she is no longer. And I mean, I'm, I'm older than you. I've, I remember when uh, Obama became president or I actually, I remember when uh, uh, Pelosi became speaker of the house mm. and her first, the first words out of her mouth was impeachment is off the table. What the fuck is wrong with you woman? Mm. Like, mm. how were you not fired in that very moment? Mm. Um, I don't know. So. Yeah. yeah. Look, I'm with you, captain. I really appreciate you calling. I'm going to, I am having, I'm having all these thoughts about like writing a screenplay that's Bullworth. You're you're older than me, so you remember Bullworth, right? With of course uh, I remember Beatty Bullworth. And, uh, Halle Berry. You know, a version of that movie where instead of the president kind of going crazy and saying all the right things because he's basically unfiltered, uh, there's like a, a someone just does like a fake presidential run where they run on all the stuff that, that you're talking about, just basic consumer protection rights. Let's get rid of baggage fees on the airline. Let's let's you know prevent people from leading back into your seat space. Let's keep you know the robocalls got like all that kind of stuff, and them actually just winning on doing basic things that that can like you can prove make people's lives better. I I don't think I don't think anyone of Bullworth's tenure could do it without the promise of getting to make out with Halle Berry. But it would have to be someone new on the scene. I just I, 
I feel like if you've been in elective politics for long enough, you're you're just broken and you can't speak in any in any uh, real way anymore. So I, I I guess I have to give Pelosi credit because she did it in record time for the squad, like one term, and they're like they're tamed, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Normally it takes like at least a decade. I used to work for Senator Chris Dodd, and it was so sad when I saw him like kind of give up and just said, okay, I'm going to be a corporate whore because Obama did me wrong. Um, mm. But yeah, that took, that took a decade of me like noticing his decline, but in the squad, it's just been one term and they're already pulling the, the party line. So well, look, Captain, you have to call back sometime when we have more time and you can regale us with your stories of having more kind of institutional knowledge than, than I do. I, I, I worked do. for his, I worked for his, uh, his constituent office for two months and like, yeah, you're, so you're not going to get much out of me other than how racist people in Connecticut are when there's an immigration bill on the table. Cause that was half Oof. my job taking calls about oh, that shit. Mercy. Yeah. Well, look, I've been trying to put together a good immigration episode too. And like, what does a left immigration policy look like? But you know, a surprising number of leftists actually don't want to step into that morass either. So Thank you so much for calling in, Captain. I'm going to take John, and then we're going to wrap. Perfect. Keep the faith, Captain. Thanks for calling in. John, bring us home, my friend. What's on your mind tonight? Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. Okay. Bree, I heard the uh, conversation with James Zagby. Zogby? Uh, I'm I'm struggling with that name as well. And I tell you, after I watched it, and I'm going to repeat some words that you said in a a rising episode that just made me flat out cackle in the living room. I scared my dog, scared my husband. (laughs) It's time to lock the kids in the room, padlock the door, bar the windows and start pushing food under the door. I'm (laughs) serious. <laughs> when I heard that today, I was just like, okay, you know, she's right. You know, just lock me in the room, put my food under the door. It's just the DNC, the whole, the whole thing, the whole shebang, the kit and caboodle. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's not working. And something Marianne Williamson says, who I'm quite a fan of, she says, you know, mommy and daddy are both crazy. And we're like mm-hmm. the kid that's being told to pick between how you want to be abused instead mm-hmm. of saying, wait, like, Let's Mm. emancipate ourselves now. Mm, (laughs) Um, mm. And, you know, I also watched your um, conversation with Crystal Ball, who I am a big fan of. I watch uh, Breaking Mm -hmm. Points quite a bit. And, you know, I hear her talk so often about how voters and people on the left and the right, pretty much everyone, the American people are tired of incrementalism. Mm -hmm. But. I'm wondering, and I'm sure I know she's an intelligent woman, so she must kind of have this conflicted view on this, but is not trying to run through the Democratic hole and like put on this fake mask to try to move them incrementally, incrementalism in and of itself, like, what are we really trying to accomplish? Because from where I see it, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe I, I agree a little more with CJ on this is, you know, we do have to draw a line in the sand. We have to build that wall. We have to say, okay, you know, we're willing to throw a couple of elections and let these, let's be honest, abhorrent candidates on the right win some, you know, and it's going to be painful as hell and it's going to hurt. It's going to be like hellfire. It's not going to be fun, but it's also going to teach the Democrats a lesson. And it's also going to start waking up voters. And it's also going to allow us 
time to expand because, you know, I did this back in um, this previous election for presidential election, at least, you know, I only voted for Joe Biden because I bought into that whole narrative and I quite frankly agreed with it, you know, that Donald Trump was just horrible for the country as a whole. And then I voted for um, Hillary Clinton the last election again because it was painted the same way and then before that and before that. And it's like we just keep getting back in these loops where we lose that momentum when, when it's time to fill in the the ballot box, you know, the ballot bubble. And I'm just kind of, uh, you know, I'm kind of really considering taking the approach in this next election, even if it's Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg, which is a horrible choice that they put him up there. You know, and even if it's against, you know, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit this out. Mm -hmm. You don't get my vote anymore. You're not delivering. You haven't delivered for me or my people or, uh, you know, the people that I care about, my community in decades. And I'm going to let a Ron DeSantis win and I'm going to let it hurt. So, you know, it hurts. So, so, you know, I mean it when I say you need to do better, you know, because I think we keep just giving into them and, you know. I, I'm of a, of a heart. I, I approach most of these issues from uh, a perspective of someone who's uh, a guardian ad litem, some places they call it like a court appointed special advocate. So I do a lot of work with, you know, foster care children. And I see just the inability to tackle the most basic needs, the most basic issues that are just kind of plaguing all of our cities nationwide, you know, with, you know, 400,000 kids in foster care, people without drinking water, medical debt, uh, student loan debt, you know, things of that nature. And I'm like, you know, there has to be that kind of we're going to we're going to, you know, do the dirty kind of switch. We're going to actually hold the line because I, I feel like, you know, I kind of draw a parallel on my head and you can kind of comment on this. I'll, I'll stop after this, but it's like. You know, the American Revolution, we didn't, we, we played that whole, okay, we'll come in and we'll, we'll talk and, you know, we'll try to get you to kind of acquiesce to some of our demands, you know, my Lord, my King. And, you know, we ended up saying, okay, that shit doesn't work. Like, no, we're going to draw the line and we're going to flip the table over and uh, we'll deal with the fallout after and it's going to be hard and it's going to be painful, but this is what we need to do. And I feel like we're at that, that precipice, that breaking point, honestly. Mm. I, I think that we are too. I think the tough sell for people and I, and I respect this on some level because, you know, as I said on uh, RBN earlier today, like I'm not the person who's going to suffer the worst of the harms of what happens when DeSantis is president. Right. right. So I feel a little ambivalent being the one to say that, but I also really respect why other people say it. And the, the thing that people want proof of is that if we do this and we let them win and we take the hit, that the Democratic Party will, in fact, learn the lesson. Because what I think, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to good faith Crystal's argument, if I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, um, steel man her argument, then I think what she would say is, well, if the Democratic Party is really that corrupt, and if they really would rather, I mean, I think we've already learned that they'd rather lose than do anything good for progressives or have any <laughs> real structural change, then right. like, who is this really for? You know, they, they, they nominated Hillary when they knew she wasn't the best candidate to beat Trump, you know? So like, who is this really for? Are we just putting everybody through this misery with no actual gains on the other side? And I would say, well, the gains aren't necessarily like the the democratic party is going to reform, but that the people learn a lesson about the fact Mm -hmm. that the democratic party would rather throw them under the bus than actually 
give things to them. And that helps you convert people to a whole new party. Right. And that's my thinking. Now, let's throw this next election and let's have some abhorrent character like Donald Trump or if you know, Ron DeSantis will maybe be less controversial, um, although Albert very controversial. And let's say, OK, you know, here's four or eight years of hellfire for the whole country. Hey, this is the Green Party. This is the uh, hell, even the forward party. This is the uh, you know socialist party. Hey, we're giving you alternatives. We're not Democrats anymore. Like we, we are giving you real choices. You want us to help save you from all this now that we've all had to suffer through it. And, you know, kind of make the Democrats the a thing of the past. Uh, I, I know that's not a easy feat, but I mean, just from w- what I see, um, it's, it, it has to be done. Otherwise, we're just always in this never ending cycle. It just seems to be never ending. And we're always talking about the same issues and the same situations. And, you know, it's always every election is life or death for the Democrats within the past decade or two. And I'm just like, uh, no, no, no. We can't keep buying these narratives anymore. And that's a, I mean, it's true. You know, we don't have a guarantee that it comes out in our favor in the end. It could just blow back in our face and, you know, the country actually crumble and descend into madness. But uh, you know, mm-hmm. we're not too far away from that all, as it is. So we haven't tried it. Let's actually try it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. Look, I really appreciate you, John, and all of you. I can't believe how many callers are still in the queue. We've been going for three and a half hours now. You guys have really <laughs> helped me process a lot, like you always do. I cannot, I cannot speak highly enough of this show and what it does for my mental health and what it does for my intellectual rigor and you know just the the fortitude um, that I feel from kind of having you guys kind of at my side, working through this stuff with me, pushing me, pulling me in ways that I find to be very constructive and and ultimately fortifying. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you again. And a special thank you to CJ for the wonderful interview on RBN earlier today, which everyone should definitely go and listen to. And please do subscribe to RBN and click the notification bells because the algorithm is hard. It's so hard to compete in this media space. Um, And thank you for for kind of co-hosting with me tonight and offering so much... um, Push back on this episode and on your previous times here on the on the pod. I feel like I feel like every time I'm on here, I'm on an episode where I'm pushing back. That's, <laughs> I'm that's sure the there's something. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Oh, maybe that's why I'm I'm being invited on. But what, what what my closing thing is just to you know make sure you follow us on RBN. Make sure you 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 uh, follow us on Twitter and and check us out on on uh youtube and i'm gonna leave just this last like message for those that are still on the fence i want us on the fence with the democratic party i want to push you to the side where you're saying no democrat no to the democratic party what's different about a candidate running in the green party for example or any third party is that their party is not working against them mm-hmm and that's the unique thing you have with the Democratic Party. You're fight. You're gonna have your. You have an opponent in the primary. The the, the, the the your own party is fighting against you. You're mm-hmm. unwelcome, and that's just not something you'll have with other parties. Yes, a hundred percent. That's such an important point. I also want to say that I see some other. I think new faces. Rob Sebs. I'm so sorry I didn't get to you. Please call back again. Gary, I haven't talked to you in a while. Dan, I don't think I've seen your face before. Jay, I don't think I've seen your face before. 
you know, I love you, Jonathan. I'm going to get you two next time. But thank you all so much for being so patient and waiting in line. I really feel terrible. If it weren't for the fact that I have other things to do and I got three hours of sleep last night, I would try to push through, but I got to walk this dog <laughs> and um, get a little bit of rest. But again, I appreciate all of you. And I will see you on Monday for a episode and a guest I know you've all been looking forward to, a COVID-related banger that hopefully will rehabilitate uh, me a little bit after that um, Walker, Brumskin, and Robbie Suave episode that some of you weren't wild about. So stay tuned. Take care of yourselves and keep the grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can all ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. Yeah. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish that every time we love it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we move it, it feels just like this.